Welcome to the Combat Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peacock. My guest today is Master Greg Koval, a sixth Don black belt in Taekwondo and a BJJ purple belt. In this episode, we compare and contrast different training styles across the spectrum, debate the merits of traditional training methodologies, and find common ground between new and old methodologies. Greg is a veteran instructor with diverse martial arts experience, so no matter who you are, he has something of value to offer. So if you're excited to jump in, hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher now. Forgive me, I didn't, I watched some of your videos before um, before today, but uh, I, I forgot to go back and revisit our conversation we had on Facebook. <laughs> no, it's, it's totally fine. Like, I remember the conversation, but like, you know, there's so much content to look out, out there right now that it's tough to keep on top of everything. Um, yeah. I mean, I, like, if you look at my YouTube feed, like, I have like probably 50 martial arts channels that I'm subscribed to. Right. Um, and unfortunately, the algorithm still populates the same five. So I have to manually go through and look at them. But there, mm-hmm. there's just a ton of content. And a lot of people have really amazing stuff out there. Um, yeah. One of the ones that I'm really into right now is Tommy Moore at Bartitsu Lab. I did a video featuring like me trying out the lamb method, which he was demonstrating on there. Um, I like a lot of the stuff that he has. It's really unique. Uh, it's one of my new favorite channels. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, I, I still do a lot of the big ones that everybody knows, you know, the Ramsey Dewey's out there. And yeah, he's a, he's like how, how long have you, how long have you followed Ramsey Dewey? Uh, on and off for years. Like, I mean, I, I don't follow him closely, but periodically, like when I see him come up with something that it's an interesting technique. Yeah. Um, but, like he just did one talking about using the Philly shell as a defense for wrestling. And I, I yep. really like that. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, I like that stuff more than his actual, um, uh, like it's just the talking stuff and, and that stuff's okay. But mm-hmm. you know, I think I listen to it less now because I'm working from home since COVID started. Mm-hmm. Um, when I have a drive, I'm more prone to listen to that type of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the opposite. I, I, well, I, de- you know, I think all martial arts like the technique stuff. I, I definitely like the technique stuff, but the, um, the more, the, the more cerebral stuff is really gets my, my juices flowing. Um, sure. But, you know, I, I come at it like with the whole point of this podcast is to take uh, kind of a step back and look at martial arts from a methodological perspective. So that's kind of where my mind's been at for the last uh, probably three or four years. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, everyone, their focus is different because they have different different things going on in their their journey. But mm-hmm. um, I definitely don't, uh, I've, I've followed him since he was, I don't know if you remember this, when his channel was called Ballet Man. I, yeah, you know, I think I started after that. I, like, I think I've okay. seen some of the videos up there, but I, I started after that. Um, that was like 10 years ago. I mean, legit, yeah. 10 years ago, YouTube was still very new. He yeah. was posting, he, he posted this video about um, uh, how to find a good Taekwondo school. Yeah. In the case, he's got this old webcam that's like, re- and it's really dark in the room. And he's not even yeah. looking at the camera. He's looking at the screen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how long I've that's how long I've followed him. And it's been on. You know, I go through seasons. I'll 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 hound his videos and watch all of them, and then I'll go and I won't sure. watch. You know, I won't watch one for two months. <laughs> but you know, but for the sure. thing I like about videos like that, though, those really old ones, is it kind mm-hmm. of is refreshing because. You know, we all look at our content sometimes. We're like, God, that is just terrible. How did I do stuff so bad? Yeah. And, and we all progress as we continue to put out content. But if you get a guy like Ramsey Dewey, who obviously has great video quality, he, he mm-hmm. does good videos, and he's got that very soothing voice. Yep. Um, 
you know, it, it's good to see guys like him make imperfect videos as well. I really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, the, the production quality of it was lacking, but um, obviously the content itself was still just as good as this stuff is now. Oh, it was, sure. I, I it was well-structured and well-argued. I like his mind for martial arts. Um, mm-hmm. like, I'm very interested in his thought processes behind his, like he has, he comes from some interesting like points of view. Like when he talks about like rule sets for MMA or he talks about like how martial arts is done, particularly like martial arts in China, because, you know, we hear a lot yep. of stuff about, you know, these MMA fighters fighting these traditional martial artists and stuff um, and sort of the cultural stuff going on there. And it's interesting to get somebody who's actually like on the front lines of it, seeing it a little bit closer. Right. Yeah. I was, I was floored to find out that, uh, Taekwondo was kind of more popular in China than Kung Fu. That that threw me for a loop. Um, but I can yeah. understand. I can understand that. Yeah, it, it's a little bit surprising because once again, it's a cultural thing. It's like it, like it's like going to Japan and be like, "What Taekwondo is more popular than karate there?" And I don't think it is in that case. But it, it's the same kind of sentiment. Like mm-hmm. you'd be surprised. Whereas I think some of the other countries where you talk about like Indonesia, where you have smaller martial arts. Um, to see Taekwondo being really popular there by comparison is not as surprising because those arts are by their nature, just a little bit smaller in the way that they're taught. Whereas Taekwondo, I think it's, there's a lot more, um, not just marketing, but there's a lot more popularity and a lot more spread. It's in the Olympics and stuff like that. Right. So it it carries a little bit further. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, I went to a grassroots seminar here in uh, Waxhaw, North Carolina. Um, and uh, uh, she's she's since passed on, but uh, Missy Can was the North Carolina director for the the the, the AAU, the local AAU organization, and um, she grew up in uh, I believe Taiwan, and she uh, she her dad put her into kung fu where she did like these these uh, these forms all day, and it was all about the aesthetics. And she remembers um, there was a Taekwondo club that used to meet beside wherever she was. She was, uh, and this is way back. This is like probably the eighties or the, mm-hmm. the or the early nineties. And she remembers that she went over. She she heard pop 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 pop, and she didn't know what it was. So she went over the other side and she saw these these Taekwondo people just beating the crap out of each other on their hogus. And she's like, I want to do that. I want to fight. And her dad didn't yeah. want to, her dad did not want her to do it because <laughs> she didn't want her to get all bruised up and she did it anyways. But, um, you know, and it's funny you mentioned that too, because like, I just got in a conversation with somebody recently that we were talking about how, you know, a lot of people like in this day and age, Taekwondo is starting to get this bad reputation, unfortunately, because of a variety of things. Um, yeah. some of them are Taekwondo's fault. Some of them are not. Well, people forget that in the 80s and early 90s, Taekwondo was king. Like there was a reason that so many people were drawn to Taekwondo. Um, yeah. And especially at that time period, it was a lot more dynamic than a lot of the more fixed styles. The footwork, when you compare it with like karate, for example, at that time period, mm-hmm. uh, I think karate's adapted a little bit since then. But in yeah. the 80s, like these Taekwondo guys are like floating around these guys, catching them from a distance. And it was so dynamic. Um, right. And since then, I, I don't think that the art has necessarily been watered down. I think the Olympics have not helped it. I do think that there's some questionable teaching going on and there's sure. some standardization that could improve it. But, you know, unfortunately, it's gotten this reputation and, you know, martial arts are kind of circular like that where, you know, right. Aikido is really suffering from its reputation right now. 
Um, Krav Maga well, is starting to get it when five years <laughs> ago, everybody loved Krav Maga. And now people are like, oh, there's Krav Maga. I don't know about it. I um, didn't. I don't like Krav Maga. I hate Krav Maga. Naikido always sucked. well you know here's the thing i'll say this much i took aikido for about a year and a half in my 20s yeah and i did it because i wanted to expand the hapkido i was learning in taekwondo (laughs) from my grandmaster who unfortunately (laughs) just didn't have time to teach more hapkido yeah and i wanted to kind of expand on some of those principles and there are some good things that you can learn in it so for example if you're multiple opponent defense you'll learn a lot of great stuff if you want to learn some introduction to weapons, it's a great place to start. If you want to learn some like low percentile moves to expand on already a good base, that is where Aikido is beneficial. The problem is that, like I said, they're very low percentile techniques. So I wouldn't start with Aikido, but if you've got a good striking base, you already have some grappling, you already have some maybe judo or wrestling or something like that, and you want to get something for maybe these like um, unbalancing things to expand on what you already have, Aikido is fantastic for that. I think that if you're looking for cultural stuff and you're looking for that type of stuff in Aikido, I think it's great for that. But if you're looking at straight Aikido in terms of like fighting against like Muay Thai, clearly it's not going to live up to that. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I like Hapkido. I know it's kind of very similar to Aikido. Um, not. I have the same thoughts towards Hapkido at this point. Um, you know, yeah. my 20. 20- I was exploring a lot. You know, we all go through periods of exploration in different martial arts and trying right. out new things. Um, yeah. And at that period, I was just exploring a lot of Hapkido and finding out more about it. Yeah. And there are some things that are really great in there, but I think that there's a lot of things in Hapkido that drive me nuts. The, the big one is that uh, one where you drop to the knee and you do the foot sweep, the spinning foot sweep. That is the worst move ever in martial arts. Like dropping to your knee, putting yourself in a potentially grounded position and using a technique that is very likely not going to actually sweep them. Uh, it's a technique that drives me nuts, but Hapkido guys love it. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I'm a little reticent about the Aikido, like as an introduction to weapons defense. <laughs> I don't, I think the value there is in some of the, the, um, some of the ways they do, uh, the wrist locks, like the, um, not the entries so much, but like some of the ways of manipulating the arm, is could be useful in some cases. And I think that Ukimi is like really, really good. Um, but like, yeah, but yeah, there's, right. there's I, value I, there. There's value there. I mean, it's, you know, everyone teach their own. My, the thing I have to remind myself a lot and because my focus is always primarily on actual fighting application. Um, and you know, I, I don't do MMA, uh, but I do a very open style of Taekwondo is what I like mm-hmm. to call it. Because I think you have to open yourself to, up to rule sets as much as possible in order to become yeah. efficient as a martial artist. So my focus is always on self-defense. And it's easy for me to forget that not everybody is into it to learn how to be John Wick. You know what I mean? Not everybody <laughs> wants to be this indestructible fighting machine. So if somebody ever attacks me on the street, I can you know fight off 30 attackers. The reality is a lot of people go into martial arts for different reasons. Um, I think probably far more people go into martial arts for fitness than ever for self-defense. Um, some people are looking for things to do just to meet other adults. I mean, to be totally honest, it's very hard for adults to have friends anymore. Um, and so if you're looking for something to do to hang out with people, you know, and maybe you don't want to get your head kicked in. So Aikido is a really great platform for that. Sure. Some people are really into the cultural stuff and Aikido is full of that. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's just, it's hard for me to remember sometimes because my focus is very different. 
Um, just like I get really annoyed with Taekwondo a lot of times because it's so sport oriented uh-huh. and the sport has taken away from so much self-defense application. I get into arguments all the times with guys in Taekwondo about like how effective certain techniques are. And it's because they have these ideas based on sport that they have unrealistic expectations for certain things. Yeah. But then I have to remind myself, you know, maybe they're just not focused on it. Maybe they just want to do sport. That's okay. I don't get mad at people who play soccer because they're not doing self-defense. Yeah. It's okay. You know, different things for different people. <laughs> right. Yes. That, uh, Ian, I had Ian um, Abernethy on from the, the, the last episode of season one um, this summer for the podcast. And man, that, that was such an awesome episode. And that was kind of his thing. Him and I jived on that, but it was for, for, because I'm, I'm, I'm on the pro sport end and I, I'm really, I really, uh, I, I'm a big advocate for the combat sports in general. Um, sure. I come from a traditional background and I had the same thoughts as you did a f- quite a few years ago. But since then, I've, I've, I think that even if the sport itself uh, introduces some, some wonky dynamics, it's doing more to keep the art honest than um, a lot of these stagnant traditionalists that you see on Facebook um, who, who I endless- disagree. Yeah I, yeah, I don't disagree. I think that, yeah. like, here's the thing, like, as much as I, like, I have mixed feelings towards it because on one hand, I really love any combat sport. I'm the kind of guy that I don't care at all about football or baseball or anything like that, but I will watch wrestling, uh, boxing, MMA, Taekwondo, Judo. I love combat sports. Anything one-on-one, I, I love that type of a contest. And so even Olympic Taekwondo, I love to watch it. My only thing is that I think that there are some things that they could do that are easy changes to the rule set that would vastly improve the quality of the art. So for example, like these suicide kicks where you throw it and you fall to the ground in the process and you score a point, but the guy's still standing over you. That is a really dangerous thing that they could just say, well, we just won't count any points if you fall down. And it would solve that problem altogether. And it would give a little bit more quality to the art while still having the same kind of dynamic. Um, you know, little things like that. I, I think that, you know, having points taken away for turning your back, I think would be really valuable, but then it would still keep it as this great sport. Um, yeah. I, I understand why they're hesitant to change other rules. You know, they don't want to have a lot of hand techniques because they don't want it to become, you know, Dutch kickboxing, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want it to be MMA. And that's fair. If they want yeah. it to be a predominantly kicking art, that's cool. But um, I do think that there's a couple of things that they could do to maybe like clean up the art a little bit as a sport. Sure. Yeah, I think, and I, they, I mean, they've been people. We've been saying this for years, but they're trying to do it. Um, There's some stuff. Are they though? Are they? They are, but they keep they keep coming back to a different rule set. Um, Oh, by by the way, my buddy just joined. He's listening in right now. (laughs) Hello, buddy. That's Thomas. (laughs) You might you might have talked to him. I don't know before. He's he's in. He's doing the Taekwondo lab now. Um, Okay. Which I don't know if you've seen that yet, but he's he that's more sport sport oriented. He he shares my thoughts. We'll we'll talk here in um we'll we'll just do kind of like a shop talk open open thing kind of here in, yeah, in a few sure. after I've asked you all my questions. But um but yeah, what, what was I saying before? Oh yeah, they are. Um there's some things going on behind the scenes. I don't wanna say, maybe Thomas can say later. I don't know if it's worth saying, but there's some things going on behind the scenes that I think is gonna really change the dynamic. 
but they haven't made it. It's probably you're probably not going to see it in the Olymp. I mean, they're definitely not going to see it in the Olympics. Um, sure. But yeah, there, there's. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's true, but. I think we also, you and I, I, I think have a dis- difference in opinion because it doesn't bother. It used to bother me somewhat, but it doesn't bother me. The cut kick meta doesn't bother me so much. Oh, I love cut kicks. Don't get me wrong. I love cut kicks. And yeah. people who don't understand the value of a cut kick, man, I, I have a whole thing on uh, my channel where, so mm-hmm. one of the things I teach on my channel is Taekwondo for jujitsu. Because one of the things I found is that um, a lot of people in jujitsu really, really overestimate their ability to do a takedown against a good striker. And it's the same problem that a lot of karate guys or traditional mar- martial artists have against people who do wrestling, where they assume that they could stop this takedown. But the reality is if you get a division two wrestler or a high school wrestler, and you don't know anything about stopping a takedown, you're getting put on the ground. But the flip side of that is there's a lot of jujitsu guys and wrestlers and stuff like that who assume that I can just land this. And they forget that there's a lot of strikers out there who have spent a little bit of time learning some basic takedown defense and learning some footwork and learning how to set things up so that they don't put themselves in that position. And so anyway, long story short, um, I started doing a series called Taekwondo for Jiu-Jitsu. And the principle is using basic Taekwondo techniques to enter into takedown safely so that you never end up in the pocket in that dangerous zone. You're either on the outside picking them apart or as they enter in, you close that gap and you clinch or you take down. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I talk about in there is how you can use a cut kick as an entry to a takedown yeah. where you never get at risk. It's such a great space uh, because it's a barrier. It's like uh, trying to pass a guard, right? Mm-hmm. When you're trying to pass somebody's guard, the more involved their feet are, the harder it is to get around that boundary, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with using the cut kick for that. So I, I love cut kicks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like canceling. Um, I think that's a really neat defensive mechanism that sort of emerged out of the rule set, not being able to do block leg kicks. I know that other people think that's kind of ugly, but I think it's a really interesting um, technique and a really interesting way to, to approach uh, a de- defense. Um, but for we're on the same bandwidth. Like before I move more towards the uh, sports science and methodology aspect of, of Taekwondo or well, martial arts in general is I wanted to be a content creator of some sort. And my first idea was really to do a channel uh, for practical Taekwondo and um, the, the cut kick as a, as a safer entry into a a takedown for jujitsu was one, was one of those. I even wanted, I even wanted to title it the same thing, Taekwondo for jujitsu, but you, I mean, you ended up doing it and I didn't, I never ended up doing it. Um, but yeah, I like, I was even going to call it something really corny. I was going to call it, um, uh, combatives instead of combat combatives. I like it though. Yeah, I know. I (laughs) I know. I know. I was like, dude, this is, this is gold. The thing that was interesting that I found though, is that the response online, when you start putting out content like that, yeah. You get a lot of really, really crazy reactions to it. Mm-hmm. And I had people who outright would just bash it. They're like, you lost me as soon as you said Taekwondo. Like, and people who are very close-minded, and it's surprising because most of the people in jiu-jitsu generally tend to be very open-minded about just functionality, right? Right. And I was surprised at how many people were, as soon as they heard the word Taekwondo, they got mad about it. And I'm <laughs> like, why would you be mad about using it? And they're like, the only thing that works is Muay Thai. What? That, that's ridiculous, right? And, yeah. and so it, it was just surprising to me the amount of pushback I got. And fortunately, I think that for every person who gave a lot of negative push, pushback, there were three or four who really enjoyed it. And mm. 
originally I put it out because I have some buddies at jujitsu who they wanted to know a little bit more about kicking. So I was like, here's a basic how to, and now here's an application for it. And then I just made it a series. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was surprising yeah, the amount yeah. of pushback I got. Yeah, it's weird because when when I train in a jiu-jitsu school, everybody's cool and mm-hmm. open-minded. But on the internet, you find it's like the internet sifts through all the gold and only leaves behind, not only, but leaves behind all the dirt. And <laughs> you attract yeah, these, you attract these weirdos out of nowhere that want to come in. And most of the time they don't even know it. They don't even make good arguments. They don't even know what they're talking about. But what I do, what I do find is a lot of these guys, they did, they did uh, karate for six months as a seven-year-old. And, and so they have very biased opinions. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And that's, and they want to say, well, yeah, I did it. So I know I'm like, well, eh. But you didn't really do it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't really know. There, there's a difference between doing it for 30 years with a focus on self-defense and somebody who does it as a kid for six months and gets a yellow belt. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. They're not the same things. Like, yeah. Like, did, you learn I, things- it, yeah. Like, did you get like, did you even get like, even like, even with uh, point sparring, the, these high level point sparring guys make up the karate combat um, yeah. event and they don't suck. Right. They're pretty good. So I, even at the highest level of um, of something like point sparring, which is univer, you know universally maligned among continuous type sparring people, uh, e- even those there's va- there's even value there. Those guys are actually pretty good. You, I mean, you if oh, you never yeah. made well, it to if so, you never made it to that level, you can't really say that you really really know about yeah, this I, type of modality. I agree. It, like so, here's the example I like to give: is if you look at a guy like Wonder Boy. When he did kickboxing, there are a lot of guys in kickboxing who come from a traditional martial arts background. And some of the best kickboxers are guys who came from Taekwondo because their kicking is so ahead of everybody else that when they add in boxing, they have this huge advantage. And a guy like Wonder Boy, who came from this traditional karate background into kickboxing and rounded out his game, man, he tore everybody up because of that point style fighting that he does. Because people who have never fought that, they don't understand how hard it is to enter on a guy who they never stay in range. They hit mm-hmm. you in their back out of range. They hit you in their back out of range. Yep. And, you know, like look at Holly Holm versus Ronda Rousey. It's another good example oh, of somebody yes. who she hit her and got back out of range and just frustrated her, right? Because she knew that Ronda Rousey was going to do that charge and boxing style she did. Yep. And she picked her apart. And there's guys, some of the best fighters in the UFC use that style. Right. Right. Yeah. And Holly Holm even picked apart a, uh, a pretty good boxer a few months ago uh, with, with that same style, which, which is, is kind of surprising because boxers kind of have the same style, but um, yeah, she, she really picked her apart. And I think her, yeah, her, her kicks style, is from a different range. Yeah. Her, right. Right. She had to stay closer and she, you know, Holly Holmes obviously better with kicks than this, this boxer mm-hmm. girl. So she was able, she was able to, um, to bring out the win, but yeah, I mean, that's a great segue to one, one of the main questions I want to ask you. And that is, um, you know, what, what, what was the driving force behind your series, the Taekwondo upgrade? Yeah. You know, and this is something that we had kind of touched on a little bit. So originally when I started, um, I think it was started out of a little bit of frustration to be totally honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it's like we said before, like there's a lot of guys who have the wrong impression and unfortunately not every Taekwondo school is good. Like, there are some chain schools that maybe are not as great. There are some people teaching that maybe do not understand what they're doing as well. It, and it doesn't mean all of Taekwondo is bad. It means that not every school is at the same standard. 
And I think I was a little bit frustrated by that expression that I would see in people's face when I told them I had done Taekwondo for 30 years. And they, I was tired of getting that look like, oh, you mean that thing my seven-year-old does? <laughs> and, and it's like, oh man, it's like, and I got a little frustrated because my focus has always been very self-defense oriented. Mm-hmm. And then on the same note, I would run into all these people who would go to these schools and they would burn out because I would at like, I would ask these young teenagers, you know, 17 year old, 16 year olds who their parents put them in it and they were burned out. And I say, you know, there's a lot more to martial arts than maybe what you're doing. Like how much time are you spending on forms and one steps? And then how much have you learned boxing? How much judo have you done? Right. How much have you done with this other stuff? Right. How much have you worked on leg kick defense? Mm-hmm. How much have you learned on the intricacies of like having your foot on the outside compared to the inside fighting from an open versus a closed stance, like really the intricacies of movement how you set up your techniques. And the answer, I always got blank stares. Like I've never done any of that. And it led me to realize that what has happened is that Taekwondo, there are good and bad things with Taekwondo. One of the things that I think frustrated me was I was seeing all these programs that, you know, you come into a program, you learn basics, you learn forms, you learn one steps, but a lot of schools don't spar because of insurance. A lot of schools, if they do spar, you know, it's, they only do point style, but they don't do anything beyond that base curriculum. And what happens is by the time they get to black belt, they're like, well, I don't have anything else to learn except for doing forms. And the well goes so deep on martial arts that I think I was frustrated. Yeah. And I said, look, let's start expanding the curriculum in Taekwondo to become more well-rounded. Do we have to change the sport rules to include uh, boxing? No, we don't have to do that. Do we have to do full contact, you know, punch into the face? No. Do we have to do takedowns? No. But we can expand a little bit and maybe just play with some stuff and learn a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so while it started off as like this idea, like I want to change the broad curriculum of Taekwondo, I realized that that was an unrealistic expectation. And honestly, it didn't take into account the fact that different people go into martial arts for different reasons. Right. Um, some people don't want to, like, I know a lot of people that all they want to do is forms. They like forms. They don't want to do sparring. Why make them spar? Okay. So there are people though that are interested in more and unfortunately they don't know how to go about it. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, my biggest pet peeve, the thing that drives me nuts more than anything else in all of Taekwondo is instructors teaching shit. They don't understand. Right. I get so mad about this when I see a local Taekwondo chain who is teaching Krav Maga. <laughs> like you've never done Krav Maga. Why are you trying to teach something you don't understand? Or they say, well, we do kickboxing. Or they try to do a jujitsu class because they got a six DVD set of jujitsu, right? Right. Um, you have no business teaching a thing that you don't understand. And unfortunately, a lot of people learn things wrong because of it. I mean, I, you've been on the internet too. How many times have you seen somebody do an armbar that you're like, what are you doing, guy? Um, All the time, including Krav Maga people, which is why I hate it. Sure, sure. And so what I wanted to do was kind of create a resource where I said, like, look, let's take the basic principles of Taekwondo. And we're going to add in a few things. So if you want to be focused on self-defense and you want to have a more rounded out style, here's some things you can add into it. And so I started off with like, hey, here's some basic boxing. Here's how you, here's a basic sprawl. Here's a basic single leg defense. Um, you know, here's some basic uh, techniques for leg kicking defense. Like how do you defend a leg kick if you want to stay bladed, right? You don't have to use a boxing style. And that squared off Muay Thai style to check kicks. Like there's other solutions. Here's some other things that maybe you can play with. 
Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of started expanding. And like one of the things I did was I created like a sub channel of the Taekwondo upgrade where it's all get back to your feet. And I realized like, look, not everybody needs to learn a ton of jujitsu, right? Because yeah. honestly, unless you take jujitsu full time, you're not stopping a wrestler from taking you down, right? You're not going to stop a guy who does jujitsu unless you do it yourself. But for a lot of fights, you end up on the ground through unfortunate circumstances. And honestly, I believe that in Taekwondo, when you come to self-defense or any kicking, you are not free to kick freely and be an effective kicker unless you have some techniques to get back to your feet. So Mm -hmm. I started a very introductory level of jujitsu that it's what I teach my students where I don't teach submissions. I don't teach sweeps. Everything I do is just techniques to get back to your feet or to keep yourself safe. So if you don't know what to do on a closed guard, you keep the head down and you get an overhaul and you just keep them tight and hope to ride it out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then here's some basic like wrist control, you know, knee in the bicep and stuff like that. Getting back to your feet. Then here's how you do a technical standup. Here's how you go from half guard back to your feet, stuff like that. Um, and all I did was focus on that one principle so that if they end up in one of these landmarks, they have something they can do. Because they don't need to know how to do an arm bar. A lot of schools want to start people off with arm bars. Unless you do a lot of arm bars, you're never going to pull that off in a fight, right? When mm-hmm. I was in the Marine Corps, they did McMap and they teach arm bars in McMap. And I'm like, you know, I can teach anybody to do an arm bar in 15 minutes. But then setting up that arm bar, using it against somebody who's resisting, like get, pulling off details under pressure, these kind of things, it's a whole other animal. You know what I mean? Uh, and so, I wanted to start kind of pushing more so that guys who were interested in self-defense from Taekwondo had a resource that they could start building upon their game with mm-hmm. and while still being Taekwondo fighters. So I don't want them to be Muay Thai fighters. I'm not a Muay Thai fighter, but here's something that you need to be aware of. Maybe somebody does a plum clinch to you. What are you going to do if that happens? Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like that. So that's my focus. Cool. So what's your, like, do you have a filter for what it is you decide you're going to address on the channel? Do you have a certain, like a methodology for choosing um, what solutions you're going to present? Like, uh, are they, they want to be more Taekwondo in flavor or they, they, they mesh well with Taekwondo. How do you approach that? So initially I started off with just things that were kind of blaring holes in Taekwondo. Um, you know, boxing is a really good example where, you know, you don't need to know a ton of boxing, but you need to know a couple things. And a lot of Taekwondo fighters assume that they can just like keep them at bay and that boxer is never going to enter range. But then they don't understand like boxing is not just like people like to think of boxing as it's just one thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of different philosophies. You know, peekaboo boxing is not the same as a Philly shell. They're very Mm -hmm. different approaches. And if you get a guy who's good at peekaboo boxing and closes that gap, you need to have some solutions for it. So I said, okay, what are common issues that you can run into that you need to have at least one or two solutions for. And some of them were like, like I said, leg kicks, defending a basic takedown and learning how to do a sprawl, uh, learning how to do some basic punching, learning like, here's a good example. So um, I don't teach, I teach a little bit of clinch work in my program, but what I really focus on is teaching escapes from a clinch, real basic stuff, like create a frame and back out, right? Yeah, And it's a very simple principle that if you can do that well, then you're going to be in pretty good shape for a lot of things that you run across. And I have a couple of students that they don't know a lot from the clinch, but it's hard to hold them in a clinch because they're so good at breaking that because we do it in our sparring. Mm -hmm. 
And so part of it, it was just things that as a Taekwondo fighter, here's things that I played with by expanding my sparring. Um, and part of it was just kind of like blaring holes. Uh, not falling down was a big one. Um, I had a whole thing on common reasons why people fall down in Taekwondo and some simple solutions for that. Mm -hmm. uh, why you need to not turn your back and what to do if you have done it. Um, I, I think that these are things that anybody in Taekwondo can kind of appreciate. And then from there, I just kind of started expounding and saying like, hey, you know, if you're going to be in a clinch, here's something else you can do, right? Here's a, here's some knee strike principles maybe that you want to do if you want to go that route. And I kind of left it so that people can pick and choose. But mostly my focus is just if you are a Taekwondo fighter, what can you add into your game so that if you fight somebody who maybe has a Muay Thai background or a wrestling background or a boxing background, or maybe somebody who's just a good street fighter, here's some things you can do. You know, what do you do with somebody who fights hockey style? They grab your shirt and they just start punching in the face. Yeah. You know, these are, I, I think that these are pretty basic things that unfortunately don't get covered a lot. So my filter is just kind of whatever the hell I feel like talking about. Um, as long as it relates to growing beyond the basics of Taekwondo sparring, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So it, from, uh, from a previous conversation we had on Facebook, it looked, it, for me, it looks like your approach to, to filling in the holes for Taekwondo is more, um, I guess, I guess that you could say like technique based, like you're looking for missing, um, techniques and tactics to fill in and then exploring how to use them. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think Taekwondo is a very effective art. I really yeah. do. But I think that if it fills in a couple holes, it'll go from being a very effective starting point to a fully fledged out system. And I think that's all it needs. I just feel like it needs to be fleshed out a little bit in curriculum. And I think honestly, if more people started spending the time to learn how to cross train and then added that into their program, Students would stay longer. Um, one of the common reasons that people drop out at black belt is they're bored. There's nothing else for them to work on. All they're right. doing is the same stuff. Yeah. And so you need to have good tactics. Like you need to understand. Um, one of the things that I've been, I spent a lot of time with is I have a section called the system breakdown where I go through and I study USC fighters and I figure out why is this guy always winning, right? Why is John Jones always win? What does he do that makes him different from everybody else at the highest level? And I started breaking that down and putting it into concepts so that people can go in there. And if they want to improve at overall fighting or even just Taekwondo sparring, they'd be like, oh, that makes a lot of sense why he does that. And honestly, it's changed the way I fought and it's improved me as a teacher and it's improved my students because, you know, like uh, a good example of that is the threat and variable principle that I put together. Um, and it's something that, Wonderboy uses. I, I like to go back to him because he's a good example for a traditional martial arts guy who point fights mm -hmm. to kind of broad, right? And he uses a principle that your guard cannot be everywhere at once. Okay. So he creates a threat and you have to address that threat. When you do address that threat, it's going to open you up for the strike he really wants. If you don't address the threat, he's just going to continue and impound you in the face, right? Mm -hmm. And as you start doing that and they start addressing those two threats, now they leave themselves open for a third thing. So these kind of principles are things that uh, are tactics that if you do Taekwondo and you don't want to do any MMA or kickboxing or anything beyond just Taekwondo, you can still take that same concept of a threat and a variable. So maybe my threat 
is a front leg side kick or a cut kick. And the variable then is what I call the Holy Trinity, where from the cut kick, you go to the side kick, roundhouse kick, hook kick, right? Mm -hmm. That is a good example as a Taekwondo fighter of how to use the threat and constantly be threatening it. They have to constantly be threatened by it. And it has to be a legitimate threat, not just, you know, like putting kicks out there for the sake of kicking. Once they are threatened with it and they address it, then you move on to the variable. And that's a principle that in Taekwondo can really expand. And when you work on things like this, people stay longer. So if you want to improve retention as a school owner, you need to put in some effort yourself in learning stuff. And I feel like too many people in Taekwondo just don't do that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Not all. Not all. There are some people who do, but a lot of people don't. Not a lot. they wonder why people leave. (laughs) I don't think a lot of people do. I mean, they they are looking for other programs because they understand the business aspect of it. But it's like they bought a turnkey thing off of, um, you know, MA Success Magazine or from Century or something. And yeah, or they, you know, yeah, I'll say this much, Matt, Taekwondo, other martial arts need to look at Taekwondo if they want to understand how to market their business and have a good business sense. Because I'll say this much, man, the Koreans, they really understand the business side of it. And it's a reason that Taekwondo has been so much more successful um, compared to a lot of other martial arts. And jujitsu, I think, is figuring that out because they're growing like crazy. And it's not just because jujitsu is popular. They're starting to understand the business side of it. Mm -hmm. And the downside, though, is that a lot of these guys, like I said in schools, they get a six DVD set and now they think they know jujitsu. Um, you know, somebody taught them to do uh, Sotagari one time, or maybe they understand a little bit of it or they've seen it. And so now they're teaching it. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of details involved. And it's the same thing. Like, I can teach anybody to do an armbar in 15 minutes, but understanding what goes into setting up that move is a whole other thing. Right. Absolutely. So one of my questions is, so you've taken more of like a technique-based approach to filling in the holes to Taekwondo. I'm taking more of a training methodology approach. I'm not saying that I don't, I'm not trying to reintroduce certain techniques, but I'm more interested in the way that I train so that that solutions kind of emerge more organically, more so than starting with like, I guess you could say a top-down approach where here's the solution, now tinker with it. Um, I'm oh, more yeah, like, I that too. like, okay. Like, so if you watch my narrated sparring sessions, I have yeah. uh, five of them up right now. I want to do more. It's just with COVID, it's hard to get people to spar because uh, just not enough people coming to do it. Yeah. But, you know, if you look at my rule set, that is a good example of what you're talking about, where mm-hmm. years ago I said, look, I love Taekwondo, but this rule set's not working for me because there's other stuff I want to work. And I started doing this about 20 years ago where I said, you know what? The first thing I want to do is I want to work in some leg kicks. What if somebody starts kicking my legs? And I realized very quickly, I didn't know shit about kick, leg kick defense. Mm-hmm. And I had to really up my game. And then I said, well, let's add in some hands. Let's add in some takedowns. And then what I eventually created was a rule set where, you know, I'm a 40-year-old guy. I'm not trying to get into MMA. I don't need concussions or to get my head knocked off, right? But I do want an open rule set. So we do um, very light contact, striking to the head if they have a mask and you have heavy enough gloves. But the rest of the time, we halo punch to the head. We don't make contact with head punches. You can do light contact, kick into the head. You can kick to the legs. You can kick to the body. You can take back. You can clinch. You can do, like, we'll do wall grinds and do takedowns off the wall. And then when you get to the ground, you can do no more than 30 seconds on the ground. And it's good for me because it makes me, if I'm going to get a submission on somebody who doesn't know as much, I got to be quick, right? I have to be very active from the moment I take them down to finishing. And for them, 
it gives them the idea of understanding why, number one, why the ground is dangerous. Because if you don't understand why the ground is so dangerous, why spend effort on it? But the minute you get somebody who takes you down a couple of times, you go, man, I really am screwed if somebody takes me down. It makes you start relooking at like, what can I do from there? Yeah. So I totally agree. Yeah, that's how I got into jujitsu back in the day. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so so it seems like because for for me, I'm trying not to expand my curriculum too much at all, and I'm actually trying to cut it down and put more time in for just exp- like exploratory exercises. Like, how do you how do you keep your curriculum from getting too unwieldy? Um, my philosophy is I basically teach whatever I want to work on, and. Okay. It makes it simple. So there's there's obviously some basic things that I have to spend time on. Um, and what I try to do is like I do series of blocks. So like I'll do four or five sessions where we'll do nothing but cut kicks. Mm-hmm. And we talk about exploring cut kicks and like how to set them up, why they work, how to defend them, all this stuff, right? And then we'll go into another segment where for four or five weeks, we'll do boxing. And then for four or five weeks, uh, right now we're doing getting back to your feet, right? And then four or five weeks, we'll do clinch work. And then what happens is we'll come back to this stuff. So, you know, yes, right now, you know, maybe they did boxing six months ago, then we come back to it and they remember these principles and they get a little bit better at it. Um, And then fundamentals, we work fundamentals all the time. So, you know, I always make sure to spend some time each class working some basics or drills related to those fundamentals. So last year was the year of the roundhouse. Mm-hmm. And I started off every class, everybody did 50 roundhouse kicks each leg. And then we did variations of them where we did, okay, 10 are going to be double roundhouse kicks. 10 are going to be front leg roundhouse kicks. 10 are going to be using a cut kick entry to set up a roundhouse kick. And it was just getting guys fluid through lots of repetition, right? So then I kind of work on whatever I want to work. And it allows me to like spend time on certain things. And it's enough time for them to learn a little bit, but not get bored by it. And then Mm -hmm. you come back to it because if you stay too long in the same thing, people stop progressing as much, right? It slows down the progression. And the best way I've heard martial arts described is that it should be like learning to dye cloth because Mm -hmm. the way that you dye cloth, you don't just put the cloth in there and let it sit in the dye, right? You let it, you drip it in and then you pull it out, you let it dry. You set it in, you pull it out, you let it dry. And slowly the material gets darker and darker. Same thing like that. If I want to teach basic boxing, I might work jab cross every day and some basics. But Mm -hmm. if I want to teach how to set up a certain technique through head movement, maybe I'll do a segment for four or five weeks where we've spent a lot of time on pad drills, setting up things off of, you know, a parry off of a jab into a counter jab, whatever I want to work for four or five weeks. And then the next time we come back to it, it's a little bit fresher. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's how I do it at least. Yeah. Yeah. I, ha- I haven't taught in quite a while. So it's, so for me, it's a lot of what I'm thinking about is, is still in the hypothetical area, but I, I would like to, because I, I taught a, a very traditional type of class before. And, um, I would like to do more with like a, a targeted warm up instead of a standard warm up, and then spend most of the class with, almost like a positional sparring type of approach from jujitsu where we're exploring different, uh, we're kind of cutting out some of the, um, some of the dynamics, like so that we can explore a a particular range of 
the Taekwondo game. So I want to focus, I I don't want to focus entirely on Olympic sparring, but like more oriented towards Olympic sparring so I can produce um, some competition. Cause I, you know, I think it's fun. So, um, but I think it is easier when you keep things narrow. I I agree. Mm -hmm. It's easier. Um, I I think one of the solutions for that though, is having different classes for different structures. So for example, I have a couple of uh, fourth dons who teach under me. One is my dad. One is my friend, Gail. Um, and so they do a Monday class where all they do is fundamentals, right? All they do is basics. And so the guys who need the time on that can get that because if all you do is the positional stuff, the problem is that there are some fundamental things that just come from a lot of reps that you got to get in. Um, and so if you want to do a broader program, you need to have classes that are focused on different things. Um, ultimately, Ultimately, you know, I, I only teach part-time. I do it as a small thing. It's a three-day-a-week program. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, unfortunately, because of COVID, we're down to two days a week. Uh, but I think ultimately, the key is to have different classes that focus on different things yeah. and allow students to kind of spend time at the classes that they need to work on. Yeah, I agree with that. A, a few years ago on Reddit, I created a kerfluffle in the Taekwondo sub um, because I, I posited a tracked Taekwondo program based on whether or not you wanted to do pumse or sparring. And I said, you know, they should have different, they're different types of activities. So they should have different types of um, standards for ranking up and moving up in the, in the, in the, in, in Taekwondo. And yeah. I know that muddies the waters. Um, so, <laughs> but I think this is something this like, so the problem is that Taekwondo does not have very good measurements for performance. And I understand why you're saying that because you're saying, well, you should have measurements to track sparring, for example, Mm -hmm. like being able to perform and execute certain things like demonstrating certain combinations, demonstrating certain counters that would be really beneficial. But unfortunately what Taekwondo has become is demonstration of basics and forms. And if you can do those things, you can get to eighth on in Taekwondo to be totally honest. As yep. long as you spend enough time. Yep. And unfortunately, uh, it, it's hard because I've actually gotten to the point where I basically stopped doing formal testing except for black belt rank. And mm-hmm. if you're going to do a formal testing, it's more of a demo at that point to show up to friends and family. Yeah. Because yeah. if I'm promoting a black belt, I've already approved you for it at that point. And yeah. I kind of approach it the way that jujitsu does where I say... I know in my mind what each rank should be and what you should be able to do by each rank. And I just don't promote people to the get there. I have a couple of kids that they've been blue belts for a year and a half because they just don't know what I want them to know yet. And I keep showing mm-hmm. them like, Hey, here's what you got to do. And when they get it down, they'll promote. Mm-hmm. And then there's some people that they're like really great at forms, but they're only so, so at other things, but overall they're at this level. So I promote them to that level because overall their game fits there because different people yeah. are better at different things. Some people, I know people that manage forms are really rough for them. They have a hard time with it. Um, but then when they do everything else, their one steps are solid, their self-defense looks awesome, their sparring looks awesome, their break falls, everything fits, right? They have great boxing. They're ahead of the game on everything else. So I'm going to hold them back on forms? No. So I just kind of just start sitting, like showing up at the end of class and be like, hey, here's a belt. Congratulations. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... Uh, so have you seen Moneyball? Yeah. 
Yeah. So Taekwondo has the money ball problem. If this is a pervasive, this is why I started this podcast, really. This is a pervasive problem across sports, across physical education, is this hyper-traditional information, um, information processing model approach to motor learning. And what that means is everything is based on technique in isolation. You have to get you have to get your technique really good in isolation, and then you start to apply it in a dynamic um, situation. And Taekwondo's problem is the same problem that baseball has had, and that is the the scouts are looking for the finesse on the technique itself, and not um, your ability to create the outcomes they want for the game. And Moneyball started bringing in, um, you know, he started bringing different metrics to predict how how successful that they would be in in uh, professional baseball. And he found that people that didn't have the traditional, uh, you know, finesse or technique or, or prettiness that they were looking for in certain, um, swings and throws and different techniques that some of these people were actually, they were really good at, at delivering, even if they didn't look, they didn't look the part. And with, with Taekwondo, yeah. we're too focused on a formal idea, a very idealized yeah, version of what a technique should look like. Good. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. I, I absolutely agree. I have a fighter, uh, one of my students, Alex, he is the best example of that. He is what I describe as a quirky, weird looking fighter, but <laughs> he kicks the crap out of people. And if you spar, I'd be like, man, this everybody who comes in there, it's funny. Cause I get guys from other styles who visit guys, you know, who've been training for a while, guys who are new. And they're like, man, he doesn't look like he's that good, but then I go to spar him and he just tunes me up the whole time. What the hell? And right. part of it is because of his unorthodox style. He mm-hmm. hits you in weird ways and weird angles and weird timing. And it messes people up. Um, look at Tony Ferguson, that weird herky jerky movement he has mm-hmm. is part of why he tunes people up. I think people have, are kind of onto it now, uh, which is why he's had the, a rough time the last couple of fights. But um, I think that overall, if you have an unorthodox style, it's a huge benefit to you. And unfortunately in Taekwondo, that's not what people want to hear. They want pretty kicks. They and, and part of it is because of marketing, like I said. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think the other issue is, you know, testings as a whole have become part of the problem. Um, I told my students, like, yep. look, I'm going to work your testing dues into your regular dues. I'm not going to charge you for testings. This way, I don't feel pressure to promote you. You know what yep. I mean? Like, when, that's when what I, I did. feel like yeah. you're overall at a good level, that's when I promote. If you want to be excellent in forms and that's your specialization, okay, you can still promote as a form specialist. I want you to learn the other stuff too, but that can be your specialization, right? Mm-hmm. You can you can still promote as somebody who is a sparring specialist. You can promote as somebody who maybe they're not the best at like, you know, against a guy who's a sports style fighter. Maybe they're not the best at forms, but in self-defense, man, that guy's scary, right? Like when he starts breaking down the way that like, maybe he's just really good at escaping bad situations. These are all important skills and you can't measure everybody by the same metric of do your forms look pretty. Yes, I, I agree. Cause the, for, your forms is what in motor learning is what it's, what's called is decoupled from, mm-hmm. um, the information source or the specifying information source. And, uh, what your opponent does creates what's called affordances. And that's basically opportunities for you to act upon. And, um, when you don't have a, an opponent who is, uh, dynamically creating affordances for you to act and react to the you're not learning an important skill that that's that's well you're you're not learning what's called perceptual motor skills 
And um, your ability to interact with a dynamic opponent is a separate skill from your ability to perform a perfect yoptagi in a pumse, right? Yeah. Those are different types of, of activities. And it's why I never understood this as a kid too. And it made me really upset and nervous about my fighting ability. Um, why am I so good on the, on the bag and on the pads and, and, and my pumse, but I can't do it in sparring very well? And that's because the way that your opponent moves acts as a control mechanism, a motor control mechanism on the quality of movement you're going to produce uh, to, to either counter or attack them. So your, your dolyo tagi, as an expert performer, while it will have a range of stability to it, will be very, it will be highly variable from one application to the next because yep. of the range you're at with, with your opponent. And most people who do Taekwondo or any traditional martial art, they don't get enough practice with a opponent who is operating like a real opponent will to develop that perceptual motor skill. They're spending I, I way too I, much time in a sterilized environment. I, I think that, so here's the thing. I, I have this video that I did on training methodology and the way that everything should be tying together. And what you should have is different, gradients that provide different aspects of your training. So for example, what I learn out of one steps, people will go, well, one steps doesn't work, but there is a value to one steps that you learn. If one steps are taught correctly, they teach a concept with a very limited resistance, but then you can up the resistance. So one of the drills I do a lot that helps with it is we do, um, I call it the, I go, you go drill. I throw a combination, you throw a combination and your partner is blocking, you know, they're defending your combination, but then it's their turn. It's a very limited version. It's not sparring. It's a drill. Mm -hmm. But what it teaches you is how to land your techniques on a person who is actively moving. It teaches you a different concept than you would learn on pad, on pad drills, for example, right? Because pad drills, your partner's kind of helping you out, right? They're putting the pad where you want it to be so that you can make contact. Even yeah. if it's moving, it's moving in a very predictable way. Whereas... Yeah learning how to not kick somebody's elbow is an important skill. And this drill kind of helps facilitate that. And then you have other drills in between. I have, uh, I, I call it three-step sparring. It's different from what's normally thought of as three steps. And it's basically two people playing chess. It's more similar to chess and jujitsu, right? Where I do a technique, then we both do a technique. Then you do a technique, then we both do a technique. And you can put different restrictions on it, but the principle is to focus on putting yourself in a good position so that when it's their turn, it's very hard for them to do anything. Mm -hmm. Learning to do things like two attacks at once so that you're like, oh, when it's both our turns, we both know it's their turn. So I have to think about what is the best way for me to move and land. Mm -hmm. and, and so these principles, it grades you into different areas. And unfortunately, what happens in Taekwondo is it's very like, it's very separated out where it's like sparring forms bag right yeah there's not the in-between spots that are really it's valuable right it's extremely formalized and very i like to use the word siloed everything is in its own silo and they don't mm -hmm. touch very well you jump yeah. you jump from one silo to the next you don't there's no bridge there's no gradient like you said there's no um you know and, and this this and honestly this is just not this is not just taekwondo this is a problem that uh um, Dan, I don't know if you know Dan Jerjevic, OG karate guy on the internet. Uh -huh. Lot, lots of great articles he used to write back in the day. This is a problem he was working on between um, 
not just formal training and practical training, but uh, you know, different styles of martial arts that he taught, trying to bridge all these different skill sets and and t- uh, training methods um, is something that he was thinking he's been thinking about for years and years. And um, we just people in Taekwondo just they have the one way that they they learn the one way that most people do it, and they there's not a lot of innovation in that that area, or it's like hey we'll just their idea of bridging is hey we'll just make a form for that right when when a form doesn't oh, God, actually yeah. ad- when the form doesn't actually address the the underlying skill that needs to be built. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen forms on all sorts of ridiculous stuff, knife defense forms and stuff like you know, get out of here with that. Yeah, it's garbage. Um, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I think that um, part of the problem has to do with the business structure. Um, you know, one of the biggest issues in Taekwondo is that there's a constant balance between keeping your art legitimate and getting students. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of these Taekwondo teachers have not learned that you can do both. You can change your curriculum and not lose all your students. In fact, you're more likely to keep your students. Um, but they're afraid of, they're like, well, it's a good thing it works. I came up under this system, so I know it works. And they're afraid of expanding beyond it. And the other thing is that, you know, we're too afraid of doing something different from what our teachers taught us. Because one of the downsides of the traditional Korean system, now I have a very traditional grandmaster that recently passed away about six months ago that he is one of the most phenomenal martial artists I've ever met. And he's a phenomenal mm-hmm. individual. But unfortunately, what happens is there's a little bit of hero worship that grows out of this. Right. And it can be yep. dangerous. Yep. And so I've seen a lot of people in Taekwondo that even people that are peers of mine that like with the same grandmaster, I'm like, look, I do this differently because I learned a better way. And they are like, no, how dare you do it a different way? And they're mad. And I'm like, oh, look, you do what you want. But I'm telling you, this works better. And you know how I know this? Because I found out through training. I found out through cross-training. I found out by applying it in sparring. And they get really mad about it because the thing that they don't realize is that martial arts has evolved a lot in 30 years. So while my grandmaster was truly a prodigy in martial arts, really a brilliant martial artist, um, and I don't say that lightly. Like, I mean, he was truly like a great martial artist, not like far beyond what I'll ever do. But he was also working under principles that were 30 years old. And we know a lot more about martial arts today than we did 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so while, yes, this was true then, you know, things have evolved. We have a different understanding of things. And unfortunately, guys don't want to hear that. They want to do it the same way, you know? Yeah. Um, I have one more question to ask you, and then uh, Thomas can kind of sure, come sure. in and we can, we can shoot the breeze. I, I want to be respectful of your time. Like, do, you, do you still have time to... I have time. It's, it's not a, you're fine. You're fine. Cool. I'll let awesome. you know. okay. sure. Yeah. I mean, I could go for hours and I, I'm sure you could too, but we, everyone has their, their constraints, but yeah. Well, so, my wife will eventually come to check on me. <laughs> yep. For sure. So uh, I was wondering because you do such a, such a, um, a more open type of training rule set for your students, do any of your students compete in like contact kickboxing? Um, so I've had students that have wanted to get into things like MMA or, you know, kickboxing and stuff like that. And, you know, it depends on where they're at in their life. And I always tell them the same thing. Like, look, if this is something you're interested in, I will train you for it. Or if it's something I don't feel like I'm the right person to teach you, I will refer you to somebody who can, because I'm totally honest about like, look, if you're trying to get into competitive Taekwondo, I've fought under the rule systems, right? I have done point sparring. I've done Olympic style sparring. 
but I'm not the guy to teach that, right? That's not my specialization. If you really want to be successful at it, I'll refer you to somebody who is, because I don't want to lead you. And this is a thing, another thing that Taekwondo guys, they don't want to admit that they're not the best at something. It's okay to not be specialized in something. And what I find is like, look, you can keep coming training with me and I'll teach you stuff. But if you want to specialize, here's a guy you can refer to. And I'll refer people out. Uh, it's the same thing like kids. I don't specialize in little kids. I'll refer you to somebody who does. Um, I recently yeah. had somebody ask about autism. I'm like, I don't have a staff. I don't have somebody who can focus on that. Here's somebody who's better for that, right? Yeah. Um, but as far as like, uh, I've had students ask me about like MMA. And I'll tell you what I told my one student years ago. Uh, he was a younger guy, 20 something, good looking guy, really jacked. And I said, if you're going to do MMA, get married first, because it's going to go downhill on that appearance real quick. <laughs> and and it's okay. Like, if you want to do that, that's fine. But um, I also kind of will tell people based on where they're at, if I think that's a good idea for them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to get started in competitive fighting, I think that you need to start early enough to be able to do it, or you need to progress quickly enough. Uh, because... Competitive fighting, if you're doing full contact, can be so dangerous that if I don't think that you're going to do really well with it, I'm going to tell you in a way that's kind of nice that maybe this isn't where you want to go, right? Or maybe you need to get a little bit more time at some stuff before you start getting into it. Um, if you want, I'll give you some drills to work on and I'll, you know, I'll help get you there. But you need to have a better starting point before you want to get into it. Because the reality is, I don't want to see one of my students get hurt because these guys are animals, right? Uh, if if you're doing real competitive fighting, you're talking about some really, really athletic guys who are putting in six hours a day. They're doing three sessions a day. They're doing the fitness. They're doing the like nonstop, nonstop training. And if you're not putting in those kind of hours, I'm not going to recommend that you go and fight with those guys because you'll get hurt. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was a time in my life I trained 20 hours a week, 25 hours a week, then hit the gym. And that was at a period where, yes, maybe that's a point where um, you can do more of that type of stuff. But I'm going to be honest with my students. Like, look, if you're a 35-year-old guy, um, you're a 40-year-old guy who's coming in here, you're having fun, it's different fighting at that level, right? Because they don't care about you, right? They're going to, your buddy in class is not going to hurt you. Mm -hmm. Those guys will hurt you. And if you really want to do it, I'll help you get to that point or I'll refer you to somebody who will get you there if you really want to do it. But I think it's important to be honest with ourselves and with our students sometimes. You know, would it have been cool to do MMA in my life? Sure. But I was never in a place to do it, right? Because I've done jujitsu about seven years now. I would have had to have done that much earlier, right? I did a little bit of wrestling and I was a really good stand-up fighter. My boxing was okay. But by the time I got really good at that stuff, I was old enough where it wasn't a good idea for me to do it. And I knew that. Yep. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's this kind of like golden spot where you got to be where you got to start early enough that you can get all these skills down. You got to put in a ton of time. And to be honest, you got to have a little bit of natural attributes, right? Not everybody's got those. I don't, I, I'll, I'll be totally honest. Um, my competitive fighting, I'm a very good gym fighter. I've done self-defense. I'm fine. But I don't have that killer instinct in a ring. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think a lot of guys want to believe that they do, but it's important to be honest about what you're good at. Now, in mm-hmm. self-defense, can I pull that out? Yes, because it's a very different situation. My mind's in a different place. But against some guy in a ring, I don't have that killer instinct. And some guys, they do, and some guys, they don't. And if you don't have that, you need to be honest with yourself and not get in that ring. Hey, guys, real quick before the episode continues. 
If you're wondering how you can supercharge your training in a way that helps you actually perform better on the mat or in the ring, I've got the perfect thing for you. I've taken the scientific concept known as transfer of learning and distilled it down into a handful of dead simple, easy to understand rules you can use to supercharge your training today. And the best part is that it almost always makes training more fun, not less. Now you don't have to spend hours and hours of drilling just to fail when your practice gets tested in sparring or competition. Instead, you can take these simple rules and transform your drills and exercises into rapid skill-building machines. Your classmates and training partners won't believe your progress. And if you're an instructor, your students will get better faster than ever and have more fun while doing it. Go to combatlearning.com transfer to sign up to our email list and grab your transfer cheat sheet now. Plus, you'll never miss an episode and get access to exclusive tips. And just to say thanks, I'll send you my introduction to motor learning for martial arts PDF so you can get up to speed on the powerful concepts we're discussing on this podcast. So go to combatlearning.com transfer now to get your cheat sheet and other goodies. That's combatlearning.com transfer, T-R-A-N-S-F-E-R. Right. Yep. I agree. I agree. Um, hey, Thomas, if you want to come off the, uh, turn your mic on and everything, but I wanted to, I wanted to take the, the discussion back towards um, teaching and training methodology again, because that's kind of where sure. I think the unique value proposition of the show is. Um, and that's just where my interest has been at. But one of, one of the things I wanted to, um, to, to toss at you, because you were talking about your, I watched your training methodology video and it, it struck me as, as like an extended version of the traditional training methodology in terms of, of, of scope and pacing and, and, and sequencing and all that. And, um, but with, ex- obviously with extensions that uh, the very traditional people probably wouldn't, wouldn't have put in there. Um, mm-hmm. for, for me in studying different approaches to skill acquisition and motor learning, I've, I've come across a framework called the constraints led approach to motor learning or just the, or CLA, whatever, you know, it's, it's a big, it's a, it's a mouthful. Um, and, and that is, and, and, and what the big thing there is what's called representative learning design. And that's when, when you're, when, when, when you take a traditional approach and you're learning a front kick, um, you, you just learn the front kick, right? You do, the partner doesn't move or you do it on a bag or you do it on, on a, on a pad. Like one of those methods is, is the way that you, you learn it. So with, with the representative model, you start learning in a, a dynamic environment immediately, right? Where there's lots of opportunity to fail, but you're manipulating the rules and the intensity such that there, you can still um, get some value out of it and start to, to feel your way um, towards gaining the skill uh, in, a, in an integrated dynamic context immediately. And something like uh uh optimizing a technique by isolating it and and working on the pads or the bag or something is instead of a basic way of of scaffolding yourself into the dynamic environment that's actually more of a remedial step so if 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 you put somebody in a dynamic situation and and for whatever reason they just can't get it um then you might that that's when you actually you start at level 3 and then if they can't handle level three, then you regress to two or one and then work your way back in if that's necessary. And that's that's kind of probably butchering it a little bit, but I've heard some people no. take, 
that take that constraints-led approach, they all they that's how they use they use that 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 approach. Um, I get what you're saying. I'd like to see some research on it, to be totally honest. And the reason I say that is this. Um, sorry, my alarm keeps going off because I sent a reminder to go get my uh, prescriptions. <laughs> uh, the thing is, when you talk about breaking things down, I think that it depends on the person in some ways because somebody who's super athletic, I could see doing that to some extent. But the thing is, every a lot of the people that I've had come in we assume a certain knowledge of athleticism Mm -hmm. and I find that I am regularly surprised that different people come from different backgrounds. Right. So I have people who come in there that they're all left feet and a lot of people learning to move correctly is an important part of the process. Uh, and maybe I've just been training this way for so long that, um, there is a value in learning how to kick correctly. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. So, the the purpose of the mechanics behind the kick is to increase function. And that function is usually a generation of power or speed in some sort, mm-hmm. or to achieve some sort of a desired result. So when you understand that function and you've ingrained it in yourself, the ability to pull that off in a dynamic situation becomes a lot easier. So an example of that is that um, one of the things that I have benefited from forms from lots and lots of Pumse is that no matter how tired I am, my first sidekick and my last sidekick are exactly the same, right? They are the exact same function. And the ability to use the correct function at the right time is an important skill. So I'll give you an example. Like if I were going to teach jujitsu and I just said, well, here's your dynamic situation, figure out the right approach. You know, having an actual function in place beforehand, it gives people a starting ground. Now, as you elevate out and as you get higher levels, I think you're going to find that people are going to go into the fluidity that they need. They're going to find the function. They're going to find different applications. They're going to find personalization. But I think at a beginner level, um, it really is important to have good fundamentals. Now, do I think people spend too much time on it? Yes. Mm -hmm. But... I think that there is a value in having uh, a roundhouse kick that does devastating damage and being able to use it at any time and use it at the correct time. Um, I think what happens otherwise is you run the risk of just people's slower development. But I, I, I'm just kind of like like spitballing because I haven't done any research on it. I haven't read any yeah. research on it. I honestly don't know enough about it to give more than just my initial thoughts on it. So there's not a lot of martial arts research on it. Um, I sent Thomas the other day, I sent him a somewhat related article on how to teach a Taekwondo kick, but it's, it was more isolated in nature. There is a ton of research in other sports on the constraints-led approach. And um, what, so what I was talking about with starting them in a dynamic environment and then using more traditional approaches as a remedial method is um, in, in one approach is called the uh, the hard first instruction. And what, what they found in other sports for hard first is that it looks messy in the beginning, but the overall improvement is faster and the retention of skills is much stronger. Um, there was a study, and this is kind of a, a, a standard one that constraints led people kind of cite. There's a study for uh, shooting hoops 
um, that was done a while ago where they did a blocked versus random practice. And this is not even a fully integrated environment. But what they what they found was the guys who did randomized, um, they shot from different from a random look from a random angle at a random distance from the from the hoop. What they found was um, the guys who did that versus the guys who shot from the same place and ten times, and then went to another place and shot ten times, and it was in a, a predictable sequence and all that. They found uh, that they that their performance online, which is during practice, was poorer, but their skill gains and retention was stronger from practice to practice. Um, so what we have right now is what's called, I think, Stuart Armstrong. I had him on a podcast. He called it the performance learning paradox where performance, which is what you see, looks bad, but the learning is better. And the only way to measure that is to wait two or three weeks and to, um, to measure performance then. And right now we measure performance immediately based on immediate feedback. And while we can increase performance immediately online, the retention of that performance from class to class is much weaker. Um, and it's super, it is not, it is not intuitive at all. Okay. I, 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 understand. I think I, I would need to see some research on it and the application because the, the, here's my question for you. Um, how does that prevent people from falling into dangerously bad habits? And I, I don't mean slightly like off putting in the way that it appears. Mm-hmm. I mean, things that are, technically incorrect to the point where it's going to be a a long-term flaw or could even potentially create injury. So that's my question. Yes. Um, Yeah. Hey, what's what's up, everybody? (laughs) (laughs) I I just finished the workout. So I I was headphoning the whole time and Josh messaged me, Hey, we're done. I was like, sorry, let me finish stretching. and I'll hop on. Um, I guess uh, just to kind of go along with what Josh was saying about the constraints that approach, yeah, there's not not tons of martial art research on it, but it's very, and I I don't want to say straightforward because some of the material is kind of dense, but if you, I guess if you know enough and you're able to, you know, break down papers and whatnot, I'm not a, you know, research, you know, well, I am a research person, but I'm not about to, you know, write a whole study on something, but I could pretty much listen to you know, like the podcast and read papers and whatnot and understand how to apply it abstractly to my art. You know, me as a Taekwondo instructor, you know, I rack my brain all the time and just kind of being like a martial arts nerd, if you will. I rack my brain all the time about how to make stuff better, how to uh, uh, implement new, you know, new training ideas. And um, I, I do it myself. I coach a team of, of high level athletes and I use the constraints led approach all, all the time. And even a step further where somebody will say that they want to spar. Like I have this guy right now. He was a second degree black belt in, well, he says Taekwondo, but he doesn't have his kooky wand, which is not really a big deal unless you want to compete on a high level, which all my athletes do. So eventually, you know, we'll have to work towards, you know, getting him that. Mm-hmm. But um, he, he's second degree black belt and his, his technique um, before coming to us about, maybe six months ago now, just, it, it, it wasn't good, but his, his, his dad, you know, comes to our school. He stopped a long time ago before our school was even made. And uh, rather than getting back in the traditional program, he's on our sparring team. He is, was the epitome of where did this guy learn Taekwondo from? <laughs> Why does he want to spar? Why does he think, you know, you know, he, he, he can be good to an outside looking in, but I have, um, 
tons of uh uh you know just me doing it myself where somebody says hey i want to spar and me turn him into a champion you know so this guy his round kick is you know 10 times better than it was when he first started and i think that's the maybe one of the misconceptions is that just because you're giving somebody like what Josh said, that hard first lesson, that you also can't critique their round kick in that session as well. You can still critique yeah. their round kick or anything else. that. Well, and I think that's probably what makes the most sense is it kind of a balance of the two. Because, I mean, it's and this is why you have to have graded training methodology anyway, because it, it could be that that guy also improved because now he's training a lot more regularly or he's training against high level athletes. Uh, you know, if everybody there is competitively competing at a high level that's going to improve people too. So uh -huh. it, it, I'm not saying that it doesn't work. Um, I'm saying I don't know enough about it, but mm -hmm. on the outside, I would say that you need to kind of have like, uh, I think there's a, a benefit to having both at the same time. And if you look at like jujitsu, for example, um, because I think a jujitsu is often used as an example of what to do when it comes to training methodology because um, and, and standardization, things like that as well. But the fact that you have a lot of rolling time but then you also have a technical aspect of the class as well. I think that's the balance that I like personally, but mm -hmm. I haven't explored that enough. I, I'm definitely willing to check it out. Well, yeah, you yeah, got some books for a while. You. So I'm willing to bet that, that you've done it before, actually, to tell you the truth. And Probably. Me, me, me and Josh talk all the time because he'll send me, just like you say, he sent me a research paper earlier this week. And I've been doing stuff for a while that I just now have terminology for. Does that make sense? Like, I don't sure. know what called you know formally or anything but even if you think about it have, have you ever done something in your your classes like golden point or only a round kick can score you could set it up with a cut yeah kick we've all done that yeah. whatever that, that, that's constraints that approach right you're putting okay. constraints to teaching practices to kind of um and what that does is promote another technique only a round kick is score you could use everything else but <laughs> the round kick is what i want you to focus on Sure. I, I do that all the time, especially, and I usually tailor it to fighters as well. So I might say for, instead of everybody does this, this guy can only do roundhouse kick. This guy can only do side kick. Yeah, that's or the, this guy can only use his hands because your hands are not that great. You need to do more hands. Yeah, that's, uh, the, that's all that is, the CLA. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it I, sounds like a lot yeah. of this is stuff that I, um, I, I want to see what you got. Cause uh, after you're done, if you could send me that in messenger, I, I want to look at it more because uh, I'm always looking for new training methodology. So if it's got stuff in there, I might not be doing, I'll mm -hmm. definitely play with it. Cause I'm always looking for stuff. Yeah. And it's, that's the basis of the, the practical application of how it would work in a practice design. There's more to it on a theoretical level that would change, for example, how you give feedback. Um, one thing I can say, and th this is why I think that too much direct instruction is counterintuitive. And if you're, you are going to take more of a constraints led approach, you should consider not doing as much of it. Um, and, and, and the reason is this, uh, in, in the, in the motor learning research, there, there is a concept, uh, called, um, internal and external focus of attention. Um, they, they also in like physical therapy, they call it distal versus proximal distal being away and proximal being towards the body. And basically what that means is, uh, when you're giving someone instruction or feedback, on their performance, are you giving them feedback on how they should think about moving their body? Or are you giving them a, a focus to organize themselves toward? And I guess I have to break that down too, because that wasn't, that didn't really explain everything. No, I uh, think I understand what you're saying. It, keep going, keep going. Yes. Because you're saying like, are you giving something like how to move or a, an end game that they should be moving towards? Is that correct? Uh, 
Yes, but with it's a little bit more narrow than that. But yes, basically that that's it. And so you what you do is you very cleverly manipulate, um, you manipulate the activity such that the person has to figure out uh, a basically correct way to do the technique in order to to complete the task. Instead of you telling them exactly, for example, how to do a chamber in order to do a round kick and how to how to pivot. And um, what they found was far and above ex- external locus of attention produces much better results than internal. And the reason why is internal makes them think too much about how they're moving their body, which creates noise in the brain. And that noise yeah. disrupts movement stability. Um, that makes sense. And this is more effective, of course, for people who are newer, um, people who are expert movers are it's the the research that i've seen is kind of back and forth on which one's better for them because they're they're they've they've mastered everything such that they're automatically thinking internally anyways um but for if you want to accelerate skill acquisition for somebody you can have to find really and there's no perfect way to do this but to find ways that are less built on lift your knee turn it to this uh exact um angle, pivot, here's the timing, blah, blah, you know, find a way for them to figure that out on themselves. Now, going back to making mistakes that are going to hurt themselves, that's one, that's one that's, that's an open-ended discussion in the community as far as um, preventing injury. Uh, I, I know that even when you teach them the right way, it still sometimes <laughs> doesn't prevent injury. Um, yeah. But one of the things you can do, I think, is really having it tied to if you're not going to do it totally dynamic with an opponent, don't teach techniques in the air. Teach them on pads so that there's they're not over rotating on their knees so much. And um, there's other feedback mechanisms too that are actually really useful. For example, um, playback of of uh, video is really useful. And yes. so you can say, "Hey, you need to yeah. pivot more," but you don't really coach them too much in the the in between trials or in between drills, you come back and let them watch it and say, Hey, you know, do you notice what's going on here? You know, direct your attention to your feet, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And, um, they can start to gain almost self-corrective feedback by watching their own performance. And that seems to be really, um, useful as well. But I do definitely have some books for you. Those books usually have all the, the, the main studies cited in them. Um, and yeah, I think I think I think you're definitely going to be interested in it. Um, it I'll it'll take check it out. I, I'm, yeah. I'm always very interested in that type of stuff, and, and I hear a lot of what you're saying, and I I'm seeing where you're going with this. Um, I think I want to get a little bit more into it before I comment further, just because I don't know enough about it to like give educated yeah. comments. Um, yeah. But I am very interested in it. So yeah, please send it to me for sure. Awesome, and that's just that's basically what this podcast is out, man. I'm trying to get this other stuff out there so we can start start as a community, start having these conversations because right now it's like, it's me and Thomas and me and uh, like one or two other guys that even know motor learning language or anything. And um, there's just no discussions like this happening in a community, right? That it's another reason why I didn't do this just for Taekwondo because some of the people that, that know this stuff aren't even Taekwondo people. They're like, there's sure. like jujitsu guys, like uh kit, um, Oh shoot, that Australian guy that, that was real popular a while Kit back. Dale? Yeah, Kit Dale. Kit Dale. Um, Kit Dale 
is knows motor learning. He uses um, some of the the constraints led approach, and he has a really unique uh, beginner program. And uh, you know, it's there's a, a Preet Mikkelsen, I think his name is. He's um he's from somewhere in Scandinavia, I think. Uh, he has like a has like a a master's degree or a PhD in motor control. You know what I mean? So it's like these people are very few and far between and, and most of them are not in Taekwondo. <laughs> so, yeah. so I, mean, I, I think I'm definitely interested because the problem I, is, uh, okay. I was just going to say, I think uh, what gets me upset about like, I guess CLA motor learning or whatever case may be is that, I mean, I'm pretty big in the, you know, sports science, exercise science, things of that nature. But the research is out there and you just have so many people that are just like foregoing the research. I kind of think about what you said earlier about, you know, when your grandmaster has been teaching, you know, 30 years ago, how, how yeah. things just aren't the same. What if people were bodybuilding how Arnold Schwarzenegger was when he first started? That'd be crazy, right? Yeah, so you, sure. would only, you would only think that, um, that, that martial arts would, would, you know, progressing that same way but it hasn't because again what you said earlier like i i meet so many coaches that i try to reach out to or come train with my guys like even down the street like quite literally and this is not to brag or anything because I, my method is very scientific i have i produce national team members every single year aau usat puerto rican haiti national team members every single year but my approach to it is very scientific and you know I'm a part of Coach Moreno's camp, and he's produced an Olympian for the last three Olympics. That, that that's not that's not by chance. <laughs> yeah. We haven't been getting um, we haven't been getting super athletic athletes every time, every every year, every four years for the Olympics, or every year for you. Know, we have to we have a scientific method that can literally turn someone who hasn't been uh, uh, practicing or or training at that level into a champion and we do that using motor learning science uh applying things abstractly from like baseball like the quiet eye or something like that yeah and, yeah uh, using it let me ask you this using it for, uh, let me ask you this do you find it works better at certain levels of experience um human experience has been doing taekwondo for four years versus doing taekwondo for 10 yeah no okay well, I, I'll tell you what, I'll take a look at it because I'm always open to new stuff because I think that, like I said, the involved, the sports science of martial arts and the fact that the way that we train uh, and the actual fighting applications and techniques, man, there's a reason that the same guys always win. And I want to know what those are. So, mm -hmm. like I said, I do those system breakdowns where like, why do the guys who go to Jackson's gym always win, right? Like, there's a reason for it. There's a training methodology that occurs in it. There is a system that these guys use. Exactly. Uh, you exactly. know, why is Stipe Miocic constantly beating guys who seem otherwise way better than him, right? Why mm -hmm. does he trounce Alistair Overeem, right? Because he doesn't seem like he's this amazing fighter, but he really is because there's tactics involved and there's training methodology. Uh, yeah. All about training method methodology, personally. I mean, yeah. me, you know, I, I haven't been that far in the Taekwondo community. My athletes have done way more than I have, but... I, I even personally was never uh, super flexible. <laughs> you know, I was never yeah. super. I literally worked blood, sweat, and tears. Well, that's a good example. I, Honestly, I that's a really good example because, like, the way that we stretch, I've changed a lot of the way that I stretch based Thanks. off of learning PNF stretching, dynamic yep. stretching. Yep. Like, we came up where, what did you do when you did Taekwondo, you know, 20 years ago? 
the beginning of class, you held a splits for 10 seconds. You did the left, you did the right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like this is not developing flexibility. It's not really helping you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't um, think stretch my, my students anymore at the beginning of class because research shows that when you stretch, your uh, muscular endurance actually goes down. So we don't even hold split stretches or any static stretches. We do dynamic warm-up stretches and then we stretch at the end of class for like seven to 10 minutes. Well, and that's what I started changing the way I did where at the beginning of class, I do dynamic warm-ups just to get the body loose. And at the end of class, you do the deep stretching. Yeah, that's and, the way and, I do and, it. And it's a really good example of like how many schools out there do that. I bet you 95% of the Taekwondo schools out there, maybe 99% of them are still doing it the same way they did 40 years ago. I I lean towards 99%. And to tell you the truth, even though, you know, WT Taekwondo is where it's at today. I mean, that's why ITF is so stagnant. (laughs) Like I can't have a conversation with like any ITFer that doesn't talk about how, how, how preserving the art from, I understand, you know, forms and everything, but like if you if you want to be more prevalent and have your art a little bit more usable, especially for present day, then it has to evolve with you. And training practices is one of those things. I'm not saying get rid of forms or anything. I'm just saying training mythology and training practices could be different to kind of promote the art a little more. I agree. Yeah. And, and I think this is a problem that Taekwondo has as a whole. Um, I, I look at a lot of other arts and you can tell which ones are progressing and which ones are not. And there are some arts that have done a lot of progression over the years. You know, jujitsu is probably my favorite example of this as well, where everything is progressing constantly. Guards have changed, right? Think about something like the lockdown that didn't exist 20 years ago. But how important is that in jujitsu today, right? Um, And then you look at other arts, you know, Muay Thai is evolving as it starts getting into different strategies. MMA is evolving. But Taekwondo, for some reason, they just don't want to. And honestly... I've had masters get pissed at me about it. Like when I mention these things, I'm like, look, we need to start readdressing some stuff and, or at least keep an open mind about it. Um, one example, I had people getting all up on my butt on the internet the other day. Cause I said, ax kicks are overrated in actual fighting and sparring. It's one of the best techniques out there, but the ability to land and knock somebody out with an ax kick is way over. Like people way <laughs> overestimate its ability. Unless you're Andy hug. Like if you can't do a vertical split and have a 350 pound squat, which is a rare combination and a perfect technique, you're not knocking people out with an ax kick. So instead of doing that, let's use it as attacking a bicep, which is within its maximum threat range. Right. And people get mad about it. I probably argue the other side of, of, of Taekwondo. Well, so I'm on board with what you're saying. I think Taekwondo is stagnant, and for the reasons that you and for the reasons that you say. However, I think there's an element of Taekwondo that is evolving that a lot of Taekwondoers don't want to get behind because they're not high level athletes and high level coaches, and that is sport Taekwondo. I give you an example. Yeah. I just put up a video the other day, and he told you early on that I started this uh this YouTube channel myself called the Taekwondo Lab, uh YouTube yeah. channel podcast, and um. I got some comments on it, you know, the other day uh, uh, I did the flop kick, right? So the flop is like relatively a new innovation in Taekwondo for like the last two years. Um, So I did a tutorial basically of how to do it. Some combinations using the flop kick in a podcast uh, episode, basically talk about our YouTube videos that week with, uh, you know, somebody like Josh or another high level coach that I know or whatever. Um, And there were comments about how, oh, this isn't used, um, for, for, first of all, people immediately compare sport Taekwondo to every other martial art. And that gets on my nerves because it's, it's, it's a sport Taekwondo technique. <laughs> it's, yeah, not, it's, it's a it's limited not, rule set. I get that. Like, right, there's it's certain not, techniques it's not that I say within that rule set were great. 
but outside of that rule set, you have to, and this is my point. It's okay to have those techniques, but we need to put them in different boxes. So like, that's why I said like the ax kick, you can do a lot of point scoring with an ax kick and it's a great scoring technique. Mu- Muay Thai too, by the way. Um, I, I think it's good for landing hits, but I think the ability to knock somebody out, like I no, look at it this yeah, way. I, I agree with that. But then again, I don't think knockouts are end all be all because a lot of, a lot of matches go to decision. Sure. Yeah, 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 for sure. So that's what I'm saying. So like in a sport arena, let's just say sport versus self-defense, right? They're very mm-hmm. different things. And, and it's okay to say that this is a great sport technique, but would I use it in self-defense? No, that doesn't mean it's a bad technique and I shouldn't train it. But people get mad at me when I say even that, that like this should be used for this context, right? And I'm okay with it being in that context. It's a very effective technique, but you're not going to knock somebody out with it unless you're Andy Hub. I wouldn't see, see me. So I'm not the type to get mad when we have these discussions because me and Josh, we don't agree on everything and we'll go out sure. and eat some barbecue later on. You know what I mean? <laughs> However, yeah, I'll, I'll argue my point, but it's all friendly. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, 100, 100%. Me personally, I would use a, a axe kick in self-defense and that's because I'm not necessarily using it to knock somebody out. I might use it to set up something else. I might want them to lean back, which does turn That's into... That's a whole a... different thing, and I totally agree. I, I totally yeah, agree. I... Like I said, my perfect, my preference for using it in application to really do damage, strike the outside, that front lead hand in the bicep. Man, I'll tell you what, I accidentally caught a student with that about a year and a half ago. I pulled it halfway, so I bare, like I hit it at 50% power, and he couldn't lift his arm for three minutes. You know, you know what I also think. I think that's people, some that's some Kempo shit I, I, right I there. Think, I think people, um, <laughs> I think people, kind of uh, think about their own limitations when it comes to like sparring and self defense as well. Like they'll say, "I'll sure. never." Use, let's say a tornado kick. A tornado kick is risky, right? We all know it's low percentage, but a lot of people don't even. Uh, begin to throw it in a way that looks like how Lee Dae Hoon would throw it, right? So, so yeah, they know that I, they, I totally they know that their spin, they know that their spin is slow. They know that they don't really rack the leg on the chain to really get a lot of power out of the kick. So they decide that it's just not a usable kick or usable technique. Period, based on their own limitations. Yeah, and that's for sure a thing. Like, it, like you have to really develop the technique fully before you could say it's not usable. So that's why I said, if you happen to have that rare combination where you can do a vertical split at a 350 pound squat and you have the technique to go with it, yeah, use it in a fight. You're going to knock somebody out, but it's a rare combination. And that's the reason that I say that as a knockout technique, I don't usually say that it's recommended for that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're using it purely to set something up, that's a whole other different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm not, so yeah, like. For self-defense, I'm not super huge on kicks in general. I think they they can be useful, but like punch it, punching elbows and grappling is like way more useful and way more high percentage. <laughs> and this, um, and this I, is what me and Josh disagree. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like the front kick for self-defense um, because you know what? Look, as I get older, man, I I got to really turn off this alarm. Sorry. <laughs> um, as I get older, like certain kicks are going to get harder, and I'm very realistic about the fact that look. Doing a roundhouse kick to the head, I'm still at the point where I can still do that. But I'm only a few years away from having to stretch out for 10 minutes before I can do that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas a front kick, I can pull off anytime. I can do a roundhouse kick to the calf anytime. Um, and, and at any age, right? These are things that I don't have a problem doing. Doing a side kick or an oblique kick to the leg, absolutely. 
Um, right now, I still have a good spinning hook kick, but in 10 years, will I still have that? I don't know. Um, so it kind of depends on where you're at as far as what works. But in terms of self-defense, the front kick is always a move that will be there. And there's a lot of applications, especially when you talk about boxers and stuff like that who are very susceptible to it. Um, a, a lot of guys like that, that street fighting thing where their elbows are high and stuff like that. Yeah. That stuff's great. Yeah. I, th- I think the way you just put it is actually what I'm going to actually start saying and start using is, a, is that you can do a round kick to the calf or a front kick at any time because I get to a lot of disagreements with people about how usable kicks are. And, and I think it, it's, for first of all, I, I hate when people say should, right? Because should implies that that everybody is on the same level as you or that person. So yeah. just because you wouldn't do a round kick to the head in a self-defense confrontation, that means that I shouldn't. So I I don't like should because there's people that are very fast with their round kick, very, very sprint where they can hit to the head and it actually be kind of it actually be effective. But I think I'm gonna start saying that you can use at any time versus like <laughs> saying that you shouldn't use kicks at all because people pe- people get crazy with that sometimes. And I wonder if that's what they really mean. Hey, you I can think use so. I, I think the thing versus, is like, versus, hey, they don't put context, right? You know, in, in martial arts, a lot of guys, we talk about online, they want to have like this end-all, be-all, everything is either yes or no. It's not all black and white, right? There are guys with certain attributes who do different things, right? Um, you know, there are moves that some guys can pull off that do Taekwondo, that they've developed a technique you know, when I say you can never use a 540 kick, no. Would I try to teach that to most of my students? No, it's it's not a move that my 73-year-old dad's pulling off. You know what I mean? Um, you know, <laughs> Me it, it's a head kick. I can pull off a head kick in a fight. I know I can, without question. Um, however, I'm also aware that if I get taken to the ground, I have solutions for that. So would I say that you should never head kick? No. Would I say that kicking to the body is more likely to get grabbed than kicking to the head? Yes. Would I say that there is a potential risk of balance issues? Yes. But if you train for this, it's not a concern, right? No, yeah, 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 I agree with that. And I think that's the biggest thing is, is the training aspect. How many people, um, I remember um, me and Joshua in this group, I don't know if you are too, the study of Taekwondo on, on Facebook. I don't think anyway, I'm in that one. Any, anyway, like 30 okay. groups. I had to limit it to like 30. I, I, I stopped. I'm about to quit. I'm only in one and I'm about to quit that one just because people aren't as progressive as I am. <laughs> but, uh, Oh yeah. I, the Taekwondo masters coaches thing or whatever. I, yeah. I think I've almost gotten banned a couple times because I put up a video talking about, um, there's some training that I've seen taught in Taekwondo kicking, which inherently teaches bad kicking balance issues. Mm-hmm. And I posted a video on it and I'm like, Hey, here's some alternatives to it. And man, I have never had so many like high level instructors criticize me and like get on. I'm like, look, you can disagree, but I'm saying like, this is a problem. When you see guys throw kicks like this, that like that reputation for a tappy foot kick, it comes from a place, right? It's not grounded in nothing. And drills like this contribute to it. And man, some of those groups, man, even guys who are like eighth, ninth degree black belts, they're just crazy when you get on there. They're the worst. I remember when I used to be like so mystified by the martial arts, like I'm talking about like the philosophy part of it and everything. And mm-hmm. then as I burst through the martial art world, especially like, I, I mean, I know some high level, you know, grandmasters who have either watched my competition career or who, who I've met since that, to be honest with you, just don't know what they're talking about. 
yeah. You know, they'll, they'll get they'll get like, you know, a Korean student or something like that. And they're able to, I don't know, because they have natural flexibility or, you know, whatever the case may be. And they, they could turn that person good. But for, for the general consensus about like time management, how to run classes, and especially sport training sessions, they really don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, I think it's really common in a lot of martial arts. Like you mentioned time management, and that's a big aspect of training. It's probably one of the most important aspects of training. And I talk about this a lot because you get guys, you know, the conditioning guys out there that they just love, like, how do I condition my back fist? And like, I want to develop iron shirt and iron head. I'm like, (laughs) why are you wasting your time on this? Right. It's about diminishing returns. Um, And then you, like I said, you have guys out there who, still believe Bruce Lee is and will always be the greatest martial artist of all time. And I'm like, okay, like if you think that Bruce Lee can beat John Jones in a fight, you're insane. Like it's just aside from the fact he outweighs him by about 70 pounds and about a two foot reach and has been tested. Like they, but guys don't want to hear it. Right. Cause they have this, it's like sometimes people are really set on, the perception of a thing is the way that it is. And they don't want to break beyond that. Like this is common knowledge. It's almost like it's that what it is, is this, it's the fallacy of common knowledge is what it is, is guys, because everybody believes that it's the case, that this is the way it needs to be. And when you start talking about different training methodologies, or you start talking about like what works and what doesn't man, people lose their minds. Yeah, Yeah, they really do. And just what you said about the whole Bruce Lee thing, it's like, uh, um, I remember one time I mentioned something like that and I, I, I was wholeheartedly like, hey, I'm not going to mention this in public because I know how people are about it. But I was like, maybe in a martial arts setting, like these people should understand and these people should know, like, duh, just like you said, like John Jones can't beat Bruce Lee or something. But even martial artists who've been training for years are like, no, Bruce Lee could beat everybody. Y'all are you're just, y'all just don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I think part of it is that when you talk about online, first of all, not everybody is what their credentials, like what they claim their yeah. credentials are. Like, don't, get don't get me started on that. <laughs> like I've talked to a lot of so-called experts. Like I can't tell you how many guys have been like, I've been in 30 fights this year alone. Like, okay. Like I, if you say so, or like guys who tell me I've done this in a fight, like, okay, if you say so, like, I, sure. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to fight with you about it, but you know, I'm going to maybe raise an eyebrow, but they're, let's just say the internet is a place where people have been known to be dishonest. (laughs) And uh, so sometimes people make claims about things and they don't fully understand what the hell they're talking about. Um, And, you know, it's the same thing. Like I still get in arguments with like a good example of the, the fallacy of common knowledge is kicking to the head in a fight that like we mentioned that before, right? There are still guys out there who believe that if you kick in a fight, you're getting taken down. Yeah. Right. Like I think, or kick like, the groin. Like, That's all you have to do is kick the groin. Kick the groin. Yeah, I got it. Sweep the leg, Johnny. Uh, you know, or that the only martial art we're studying is Muay Thai. Like there are guys who believe that because this is the fallacy of common knowledge. Everybody believes it's so, so it's got to be. Um, mm-hmm. Where the reality is that not everybody who fights Muay Thai are these guys. Like you, you got to realize in Thailand. So there's this thing I read years ago that in all of American professional sports. There's something like three or 4,000 professional athletes across all American U.S. sports, right? Professional athletes. In Thailand, a country with a much lower population, there are like 65,000 professional Muay Thai fighters. And those Muay Thai fighters fight to feed their family, right? These are people with poor economic backgrounds who fight and they train 30 hours a week. 
You mean to tell me that if you had that many people training 30 hours a week in any other martial art, that there isn't the potential for that same level of greatness? Of course not. But the average person who does Muay Thai here versus the average person who does Taekwondo, you know, it's an apples and orange comparison. This guy might have trained more. Maybe he's got more natural attributes. Who knows? It's it less poomsay. <laughs> maybe, maybe like maybe he just didn't spend as much time on things that were um, holding him back. And it's well, not to say that poomsay is bad. I love poomsay. A large part of my martial arts career was spent on poomsay. But you know, there are certain factors that you know. Unfortunately, the common belief is that Muay Thai trumps everything. And I don't think that's accurate. If you take two people of the exact same natural attributes, exact same background, exact same level experience, and you gave them five years in a martial art, it doesn't necessarily mean that Muay Thai is better. It might be different instructors. Maybe that instructor is not as good. To um, be honest with you, what I think it is, it is, is it, I've literally been saying this for years, and, and I, I've personally sparred everybody. I spar boxers. I spar Muay yeah, Thai people. Here. Obviously... Obviously, you know, Taekwondo people. And I tell you right now, the best Muay Thai school that, that is in Charlotte right now, like where I'm from, I wrecked those guys. Yeah. I wrecked, it's an experience I, thing, right? The problem is, the, the, the problem is, is that people are immediately jumped to the highest level of Taekwondo. Muay Thai competition, kickboxing yep. competition that there is. And they don't really understand that the average person is really just a low-level fighter that goes in yep. on Mondays and Wednesdays. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying about ability. So, like, the thing that I will say for Muay Thai is it's a more open rule set, which allows them to train more things, which makes them more prepared. But, like, I've trained against a lot of Muay Thai guys and boxers and stuff like that. And that belief that a boxer will be the Taekwondo guy that's crazy because I'll tell you what, I've tuned up guys because they can never enter into my range. And I just kick them, kick them, kick them every time they come in and I frustrate them. And every time they try to come in, they eat a front kick. They, they eat a leg kick and they never get a solid shot on me. Whereas I just pick them apart. And because I've cross trained, I can also take them down at will. And a Muay Thai guy, it's the same thing. I've trained with a bunch of Muay Thai guys. Some are better, some are not. But generally speaking, because I have a very well-rounded background, I can always put the fight where they're not good. Right. And if unless they've been training a long time, it's going to be hard for them to match that. But I'm not a Muay Thai guy, but I have trained some Muay Thai stuff, so I know what they're throwing at me. Whereas right. they don't know how to deal with a cut kick that leads into a single leg. You know what I mean? Right. No, no, no. I 100% agree. And this, I, I, I was just thinking about all the times I sparred like karate or Muay Thai guys and stuff, and and just that, like I pick apart. Uh, uh, basically, w what they're not good at, and then I go to I go to that realm. I think the only place where I'm not well rounded at is jujitsu, and I, I've also done jujitsu to the point where I spar jujitsu people, and they're like, "Hey, you are you are you actively taking jujitsu?" I never have. I roll with Josh. I roll with some other people, but that's really all I've done is just roll with people mm -hmm. and pick the technique. Me going to a formal jujitsu class at this point is probably never happening, especially post COVID. And, and the, like the thing is, it's not something that everybody has to do. It depends on your goals in martial arts. I would say if you're not going to take jujitsu, then you need to have some solutions for preventing yourself from getting taken to the ground so you can do things like kick freely, right? Because if you look at some of the best kickers in the UFC, they're also some of the hardest guys to take down. Israel Adesanya well, is almost well, impossible think, to take down, right? I, I think about it like... Um... Um, and j j just to kind of further your point, and me and Josh actually talked about this maybe two weeks ago now, I was like, you know, it's okay to not be a badass. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, so many people, 
like I, I gave him this scenario. I was like, if you're if you're like a doctor, right, and you're wearing a white coat and you're on the subway train, somebody's going to expect that you know, God forbid, their loved ones having a seizure. They're going to expect you to run over there and um and um and and help out the person having the seizure. Be be you a pediatrician or a veterinarian, whatever the case may be. They expect you to have some knowledge of the craft. Uh, yeah. And I I was like, how many martial artists if they were walking down a, a you know a a few blocks in Chicago and saw a woman um, being, uh, I don't know, but being assaulted by somebody in a dark alley, how many martial arts would actually run to the defense and then more, more appropriately would actively be able to defend themselves and, yes. and, and women. And my bet is not a lot of martial artists. And I say that to say that so many people want to say I've sparred here. I've sparred there. I, I recently met this Tim Don karate guy. He was like, I was one of the best fighters in new England. What the, what the hell is that? What does that even mean? You were one of the best fighters in New England. Who have you fought? What was your ranking? You know, similar like yeah. to, to what we do in Taekwondo. And I say that to say like, it's okay to not be a badass. Like me, I at this point, I, I, I don't even have no ambition to further on what I already know in jujitsu for the simple fact that I'd be crazy if I get into the self-defense confrontation again ever in my life. Like I'm not in those circles anymore. I'm not doing those things. It's not my yeah. ambition. I'm training and, and it's not your interest, like, and, and that's okay. I think I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think part of it is because, look, we as martial artists also need to start setting some boundaries when it comes to our friends, okay? Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. um, my Everybody that I know expects that if something goes down, I'm going to be able to handle I'm the guy. That comes up. Dude, <laughs> yeah. if three guys jump me with knives, I'm running, okay? Like, I'm going to try to get in my car and run them over because that's my solution at that point. I'm not going to try to fight these guys. You know, and unfortunately, because, you know, we like to set, we tend to be prone to a little bit of bullshit, to be totally honest. Yep. And our friends and family tend to believe, because we have led them to believe, that we are John Wick. And we are not. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and like I talked about earlier, like, why did I never get into MMA? Because I don't have that killer instinct, okay? And it's okay to not be the baddest dude on the planet. It's okay. Like, uh, I like doing martial arts. I have fun with it. Um, do I have proficiency? Yes. I've been doing it a long time, but you know, we have to start setting boundaries with our friends and with each other and saying like, look, it's okay to just do Taekwondo sport because it's fun. It's okay to do Aikido because you enjoy doing Aikido. It's okay to do Pumsei. Like you don't have to be John Jones or John Wick or John Wayne. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. 100%, you know, but I find myself and. I used to not argue, but I find that I have a lot more time now. So I'll argue with somebody on Reddit. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's really just because I have time to do it. Not that I want to or engage in it. And sometimes, let's just be honest, it's fun to engage with somebody who thinks they know what they're talking about, but really don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've been trying to pull back on that because I've realized that, like, once I get to that point where nobody's changing anybody's minds anymore and it's just kind of pointless, like, regurgitation. Um, I, I kind of disengage at that point. I'm like, look, you believe what you want to believe. I, I'm going to just say, like, if some people feel like they have to get the win online, and I'm okay with it. I don't feel like I need that. So I just go, like, look, you can win if you want to. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm not trying to. I just started. You know what I mean? Like, everybody else has probably been arguing for years. But me, even as a youngster, I was like, I'm not arguing with, with you. Because me, especially, like, in my heyday, I was like, let's fight. Like, you think what you know works. 
I think what I know works. How about we just fight and the best man win? But a lot of people weren't up for that. So I literally just probably started arguing with people maybe like the last three years. So I, yeah. I'm fresh. <laughs> My thing is this, like what I used to like to do when I get guys who like to fight is I used to let them, I used to really enjoy watching them burn out to kind of illustrate a point. So I would do a thing where I would just use some footwork, head movement and blocking. And I would let them do 30 seconds. Like, and I would say, dude, we can throw down. I won't even try to hit you back. And I'd let them try to hit me as much as they could for 30 seconds. And then once they were burned out, breathing and heaving on the ground, like you realize at this point, I could just kick you in the face. Right. And it illustrates a point to them without having to hurt them that like, look, you might think you're a hard ass, but I just let you wear yourself out to the point where I could just do whatever I want to you. What makes you think I couldn't have hurt you earlier on? (laughs) But back in that day, I did hurt people because I, I I had to let them know, like if we did end up fighting, I, I wasn't, I wasn't just moving around with you. I was going, I was going to punish well, you. We, we were the only time out. I did, the only time I did differently is so like in my youth, what got me started was a lot of bullying. And so when I same, was in school, same. I had to fight because the, like you get to a point where that's the only way you can address that or they're going to keep rolling over you. Yeah. And you, you kind of do have to put a hurting eye. It's like, uh, did you ever read Ender's game? Oh yeah. Heck yeah. yeah. Okay, so in Ender's game, he talks about, well, why did you beat him so badly? He's like, I had to. Otherwise, he'd have kept coming, right? right. I had to illustrate a point that they had to be terrified of me. I had to I, win not just I, this I, battle. I had to win the war. I and actually have a good story it, about that. Uh, like, sometimes uh, that's what you have to do, though. Yeah. I actually have a good story about that. I was talking with – um, you're familiar with Terrence Jennings, right? With who? Terrence Jennings, uh, 2012 bronze medal Taekwondo Olympian. I don't follow sport closely enough to know that. Sorry, buddy. No, it's not. It's not that. It's not that serious. But anyway, me and Terrence Jennings was talking one day, and we were uh, we were at a peak camp at a little seminar, and um, you know, at the corner of my eye, I see him moving with guys, and he's like just destroying guys, right? Like he's fresh off the Olympics, he's doing good. And me and him talking off to the side, and I'm like, man, well, why are you over there wrecking people? You know, these people aren't as good as you. He was like, because I'm a. I'm an Olympian. Like, if one of these guys gets a headshot on me, it's the talk of the town. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, <laughs> I can't even let them, like, you know, even be close, even be close to that because it'll, it'll, it'll tarnish my reputation. And I kind of understood, like, what what he was talking about with that. I've never been an Olympian, so you know, I and I'm well past my prime. So, but I thought that was interesting how he was saying, "Hey, I just, I just got to punch it. this." Yeah, level. I, I don't. For I, I'm not at a point in my life where it matters. Like, if some, yo. Know, young buck comes in he's 25 year old stud and he's been training and whatever and he wants to prove he could hit me i'm a 40 year old dude like congratulations you just hit an older guy like, <laughs> like it's cool. a lose, lose for you man uh, like, thomas I, I remember i think you were teaching at winthrop you we actually it's floating around somewhere video of you taking out one of these kung fu dudes that came oh yeah man <laughs> <laughs> i mean you humiliated I, that guy you 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 got like a teak not a like you didn't knock him out but you made him like almost ko with like a spinning hook kick <laughs> yeah man, i mean I was, you you styled on that guy that was <laughs> I, almost, I almost forgot about that, man. I, I'm shocked I had, we actually got, because all and everybody has this this folklore about themselves. Oh, in my day, I used to do this, this, that, and the third. Yeah. But there's hardly, there's hardly any video of us doing anything. Well, that's the hard thing. Like, 20 years from now, they're not going to be able to do this bullshit. But right now, like, uh, like for those of us who came up in the 90s, like, like I can get away with I can say whatever I want. Like, I was the, you know, Northeast exactly. Ohio champion of all martial arts ever. Um, exactly. You know, there's no video. You can't prove otherwise. If I um, if 
got a nickel for everybody who is in the martial arts hall of fame. The downside is that when you do actually see something, people don't believe you unless you have video. Like I had a, I was telling this story one time, like there was this guy questioning like the spinning hook kick and saying it's not useful. I was telling him, I was like, okay, so years ago, I used to know this guy that he was a stud. He, he did junior Olympics when he was younger. This guy was a monster. And he kicked a guy with a spinning hook kick one, so, one time so hard that the guy had to go to the hospital and he almost fractured his skull. And I was like, it, the doctor said if he had kicked him any harder, he would have made him blind. And the guy's like, that's bullshit. If you know, you know, let me see a video where it didn't happen. I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't have a video in 1995. Like of this thing that I saw, I'm not even saying I did it. I'm just saying it's a thing that I saw happen because it is a dangerous kick. Um, I think unless you, unless you spar, you kind of really don't know like how good or how good, how good you're not. And I tell people all the time, man, like once you get good, cause I used to not be good. Like I tell people all the time, I do not know how I got my first degree black belt. I sucked, but yeah, everybody starts off like I knew that I, I sucked and I took it upon myself to like get more more adequate training. And man, once I did, once I started fighting, competing, sparring at a high level, people just move in slow motion, man. I try to tell my students that like you're sparring high level athletes, but if you ever get the opportunity to have to defend yourself like at school or something like that, you, you you'll see how people can't even hold a candle to you. You know what's funny is it's funny you mentioned that too, because so about a year ago. So my, um, my dojing is in the back of a place called Whirly Ball. If you ever get a chance to check out Whirly Ball, I don't know if they have one near you. There's like six of them across the country, but, uh, it's basically you ride around in bumper cars and you have a racquetball and you throw it at a board. And it's super competitive, super fun. It's awesome. I, it actually sounds really fun. It does. It is. It's very fun. But anyway, so they have, um, a bowling alley as well. And behind the bowling alley is where my dojing is. And every once in a while you get these drunk guys in there. And I actually one time had somebody come out on the mats and try to challenge me. And he had wrestled a little bit. And I was like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know if this is a good idea, but he was pushing. I was like, and all of his friends were there. And so that kind of egged it on. But um, he was a nice enough guy. So I had him sign a waiver. And I actually, I think I pulled, like he tried to shoot on me. I fell back into a guillotine, but I didn't feel like I had it enough. So I ended up butterfly sweeping him over to a mount. And I think I got him in like a mounted triangle or something. Um, oh no, he rolled to his stomach and I got a back mount. That's what it was. Um, so it took me like 30 seconds to beat this guy. And I was like, man, like you forget like the difference between you and people who are not really, really trained. Right. Right. Like it's, it's crazy because like, like for example, like a jujitsu, um, I'm a purple belt. I'm an okay purple belt. Right. I'm not amazing. I'm okay. Um, and I roll with a lot of guys who are just killers. They're amazingly good. And every once in a while, I'll go to like a funnies class because maybe my schedule or whatever that week. And then like I roll with a white belt. I'm like, man, I forgot. Like, it's different. Like, everything's so easy now. That's funny. Uh, Josh says that all the time. And he'll say stuff. Man, I'm I'm used to rolling with like killers that smash me every time I go to practice. And it was the same when I was in jiu-jitsu. I went to this place called Great Grappling. And this dude named Jeremy around, he, he's, he's pretty cool, pretty well known in the region, especially for producing some uh, some some amateur, some amateur talent. And uh, man, these guys would just smash me. You you know, John Piper, uh, uh, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> these guys would just smash me. But when I roll around with my friends or people who just want to, like, you know, go back and forth or even wrestlers, man, I always crush these guys. And, and I'm a white and I'm a white belt. Yeah, you know, there's also something to be said for natural attributes, man. Like, sometimes you get people in there that, like, they're hard, man, because they're just, 
freaking tough, right? Like so, there's something to be said for that. And the best explanation I ever heard too, is that, you know, the more natural attributes your opponent has, the more technique that you need to overcome it. Right. Really? Um, because there are some guys out there, like if I ever have to fight uh, a running back from a pro football team, that is not an easy fight, right? This is a much more superior athlete. Mm-hmm. And so I need to have a lot of technique to overcome that. And I think sometimes people forget that too, because like, I get like, you know, people who are smaller who come in or like, you know, if a guy comes in and weighs 130 pounds and he's not a super athletic guy or a girl comes in who's a hundred pounds soaking wet and she's got a, she's like, well, how do I fight somebody who's a six foot tall, 300 pound guy? Like, well, you better train for a long time and develop some solutions because mm-hmm. you need a lot to overcome that. So there is something to be said for that too. I think, I think my, my combat to that is, is the, the problem, what I see with a lot of people when they fight somebody else who's, who's uh, I guess naturally gifted, if you, if you will, or, or who just been practicing longer. So sometimes I think it comes down to what I like to call technique selection, right? It's like, sure. and so you were talking about an axe kick earlier. And I think one of the problems is you have people that's trying to use an axe kick on everybody. And some people you just shouldn't use an axe kick on. You need yeah. to have better, you yeah. need to have better technique selection and then aiming where you put that technique in order to deal with somebody who is more athletic, have more muscular. Like I'm not hitting the fucking ox in the neck, right? I need to find yeah. a, a weaker point where I, I could, you know, uh, uh, attack that ox to to make them go down. When I feel I don't feel people use the proper techniques in a lot of situations. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You know, because like the ass kick's a really good example. Like I, I made kind of a blanket statement. Like, I don't think it's good for fighting, but it is very circumstantial. If I have a guy who's leaning over a lot, sure. I'll ask, kick him into oblivion. Right. right. Because he's giving me the right trigger for it. And I think a lot of that comes with experience is understanding what the right move is for that trigger because that, that's experience um, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's the same thing. That could be CLA. <laughs> that's not, that's what's called an affordance. That yeah, you're, exactly. you're exploiting an affordance when you see exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. So what I, what I do with my athletes is kind of just what you said, Greg, is that I only want the axe kick the score. And what I do is I have them do like, like it's free sparring, but I have them, I tell one athlete, okay, I want you to do this move, which is the signal for the axe kick. But yeah, I, want you you to, give I, the I want you to vary where you put that signal for the other person so they know how to read when they see that signal. That's CLA, man. Yeah, I, I do a lot of that already. So that it probably sounds like I'm already doing it. Um, I'm going to finish <laughs> up on this point because I got to start wrapping it up. But okay. um, yeah, you know, a lot of that I think is something that I, I already absolutely agree with. Um, I think that people get caught up in things. Um, I, I was going to mention guards. Like a lot of people say, well, I like to fight out of this type of guard. But then they don't, they're unwilling to change their guard for a different scenario, right? When something else comes up because they've never explored it and they're afraid of breaking what they know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you have to have, the ability to have variations in your technique. So I totally agree. Um, I, I will say guys, this was a lot of fun to do this. I'd love to do it again. If you'd be willing to have me on again. Oh, um, for sure. It was a fun conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Thanks talking to you, man. You too. Thanks guys. You have a good one. I'm going to get going though. Um, and I look forward to hearing more from you. All right. Yeah. Sure, next Thank time. you. See you, la- See you later. Thanks so much for listening to the combat learning podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. It really helps us out. Finally, this episode, including the intro music, is produced by Micah Peacock. Thanks in advance, and I'll see you on the next episode.